The arrests began shortly before sunrise. By midday today, 23 people were taken into custody. Hundreds of law enforcement officers had set up a blockade around Everglades City. The Drug Enforcement Administration says this community of 700 people is the hub of an international marijuana smuggling ring. calls himself the saltwater cowboy. Hey, what's up, man? We're back. It's first smoke of the day, episode 75. It's your boy Pack in the building. I'm here with my co-host Blackleaf, as always. What up? And today we got a special legend in the building, the one and only Saltwater Cowboy, Tim <laughs> McBride. Hello, everybody. How you doing, brother? Doing great, man. Glad man, to great be to here. have you. You made the flight. Yeah. Got here. All the way across the world, it seemed like. <laughs> For real, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, appreciate it and uh, enjoy being here, man. I'm excited to uh, to get into this shit. Well, they don't call you the saltwater cowboy for nothing. I mean, if you guys don't already know, this guy is a smuggler. He's a well-known smuggler. A lot of people know of him. A lot of people have read his story, and it's uh, it's unique. It's very unique. But as you say, it was something that a lot of people were doing at the time, but everyone was doing a little different. Right. I mean, there was a, the story that I tell, you know, and, I, and I'm always fond of saying that, you know, of course, we weren't the only pot haulers out there, man. There were guys doing their load here and their load there and doing their thing, you know, and God bless their asses. You know, whether you made it or not, you're contributing to, you know, the whole. What my story is, is imparting and I'm, you know, and I'm more trying to say is how a small town of of under 500 people were able to integrate this into a way of life over 40 years and three generations and being able to literally run those southern waters in the caribbean with impunity that's <laughs> that's the shocker right there and you know and the volume to which this was all taking place you know that's that's uh, that's what this is all about where's a good place to start Pack ads. I know you. This is where it always starts, Tim. What, what was your first time smoking weed? First time smoking weed, I was 15 years old, I think. And this is in the book because that's a, you know, that's a, it's something that people always want to know, you know. And um, I, at that time, was doing four years high school in Wisconsin. My father just out of 82nd Airborne in, in North Carolina, took a job in the Midwest. And I, you know, still a kid, I kind of followed them there, did four years of high school. We lived on a lake. And um, every winter, if you're familiar with Northern Territory, you put these wooden docks in and their cribs and the supports and stuff. You got to take them out in the wintertime. Otherwise, when the lakes freeze, that ice shifts and moves. It'll tear that shit into kindling. So every spring, when the ice goes out and the water's semi-warm, you put pier back together, your dock back together out in the water. So we wow. bring some buddies out from in town to help and shit like that. And before we go out to put the, you know, the fucking dock together, they're all running across the street into the bushes behind the mailbox. So I went off with him. My brother was in there with him and shit. And, you know, they brought out this little brass pipe, man, and passed it around. And and uh, by the time I got back to the backyard, to the back door, man, I was fucked up, dude. 
dude. <laughs> I mean, it was really weird because I, you know, I went into the house and, you know, of course, you're, you, the first experience is always different for everybody, everybody else, but there's still, a, a, you know, an, a modicum of paranoia involved. And I walk through the house past my mom. She's right there. And I'm going out the front door because we got to get out to the dock that's out front. And I swear, when I turned the corner, every step I took to the door, the door got further away. <laughs> you know, my mind started fucking with me and I'd get down in the water and I start splashing, whatever fuck like that. But it didn't take, you know, but about a half hour, 45 minutes later, I didn't freak out or any shit like that, but it started getting comfortable in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't too much longer after that. All seven of us are running back through the house, past my mom into the kitchen and we tore holy hell out of every fucking thing there was to eat in the kitchen. <laughs> That was my first one. Where'd you grow right up? There. Um, I grew up in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like I said, my father was 82nd Airborne. Mm-hmm. And then um, four years of high school in Wisconsin. Um, and in 1987 and 1988, I did two years out in, well, here in LA, I worked for an entertainer by the name of Sammy Davis Jr. Ooh. Yeah. I worked, uh, I was actually doing videotaping and shit. I was his TiVo at that time. He was doing Broadway and a lot of Broadway performances and wanted to watch TV without commercials. So my job was, and I got the job through my cousin, Joey, who wrote, drove his tour bus, him and his friend Hogan. And I get out here and my job was to take him a television guide. He would check off through all the shit that he wanted to watch. And it was my job to take it home and watch those programs as they came on and edit the commercial out of them for him because he wanted to watch commercial free television. He didn't have fucking time yet, you know, but at the same time, his financial advisor, Richard Wayman, who was the guy that lived with us in the house with Joey, because Sammy put us up in, in, um, out in the Valley in Encino, um, little apartment building at the corner of, I think it was Van Nuys and Balboa. And, uh, he paid for everything, you know, we didn't have to spend money on everything. I had a car rental for myself, gas money. I got a paycheck every week and shit. And all I had to do was do this video shit. And Richard, besides being his financial advisor, started one of the first video duplication companies in Hollywood. Um, coming down Highland Avenue, just across Sunset, he was just there on the left-hand side, five-story building where they were taking motion pictures three or four months in advance of release from motion pictures like Columbia, Paramount, United Artists, and places like that, and transposing them onto VHS cassette. And they were cranking them out. These things could crank out, you know, 300 of them in about 30 seconds. I mean, they had this, the technology was amazing. Um, so you're but, doing uh, all that before before <laughs> the, the big career of smuggling. Yeah, and I was there Holy for about two shit. years fucking around with Sammy and, you know, and running around with, you know, you know, rubbing elbows with, you know, the celebrity mm-hmm. types and things like that. You know, um, with Sammy, you know, comes, you know, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and, um, you know, the Rat Pack. You know, and eventually you're going to run into these guys, you know, because I see Sammy every week because I got to give him a fucking TV guide. You know, and then I got to deliver his tapes back to him and shit. But Richard having this video company and all those list of movies, he would send this list out to, you know, celebrities all over Brentwood, Westwood, Hollywood, North Hollywood, and everywhere there was anybody that was anybody and give them a list and they would check off one's copies they wanted. My job was to make copies for him and run around and deliver them to him. That's know? crazy. So I'm meeting all these really yeah. cool, interesting people of the day, which... To me, he didn't mean dick to me at that time, you know, because for me, up and until that time, and once I got here, you know, the television and, and movie they bubble burst for me because now I've, 
I figured it out. You know, I see what it is. So after two years of that shit, I said, fuck this, man. And that's when I went back to Wisconsin because that's where my buddies and everybody were. And mm-hmm. it wasn't three days later. My, my buddy Mark up in, uh, he was living in Milwaukee at that time. He calls me up and says, hey, dude, um, I'm going to Florida tomorrow. Down this little island down southwest Florida, Chukaleski, that's where Nancy lives, his sister. And um, her husband, his brother-in-law, and his sister ran the only fish house on the island. He says, I'm, you know, I'm giving this shit up. I'm going south, man. I'm going to, you know, they got me hooked up with a job on a, on a crab boat, fishing boat. Want to go? And it didn't take me that long. I said, fuck yeah, dude, I'm gone. Oh. So I packed all my shit. I had a Mustang Cobra. Packed all my shit that I had at that time in that Cobra. And the next morning, off the south we went. <laughs> and I wound up getting down into Florida, down Highway 29, and taking that all the way west. And the dead ended right on that little 129-acre island, Chukaloski. And, um, he, of course, he had his job working on that boat. And um, my job, I took um, his brother-in-law and sister were building a home at that time. So I figured <laughs> I'd h- jump in and I'd tender for the mason or I'd, you know, the carpenter, I'd help out and shit like mm-hmm. that just to make some bucks. Well, <clears throat> we didn't go down there with any aspirations of, of pot hauling. And, we, you know, because there were, we weren't privy to any of the stories you know, until we get there. And then if somebody would make like a joke about it or something like that, you know, but they're all just ghost stories until you actually see it happen, you know? So, um, I'm building this house and, you know, guys are obviously pot hauling, you know, and Billy, Captain Billy, the guy that my buddy Mark was working for, had another guy working on the stern with him. See, there's a captain, there's a, there's two crew on the back that one pulls one side, one pulls off of one side and the other like that. Watch Deadliest Catch, and you'll see how it's done, <laughs> but on a much smaller scale, by the way. Um, and uh, Captain Billy really didn't know this guy that well, you know, this guy from Michigan. <clears throat> he knew us because that's Nancy's brother, and Thorne, her husband, is a native. He's been around forever, so if they know where we came from, so we're cool as fuck. You know, there's nothing to worry about us. You know, we're not infiltrating or any kind of fucking shit. Because a town of just under 500 people, somebody shows up in, you, we know they're there, you know. <laughs> and there's somebody watching you, you know, or whatever. Because we're talking about a town of 200 or 500 people, just under 500 people. And half the town was all in pot, you know, at this time. So Billy wants to get back in. But he doesn't trust this Michigan guy. Now, pulling stone crab traps... And we'll throw up a picture of what one looks like and the boat that's used to do it. Um, They're about 50, 60 pounds a piece. And at that time, we had 6,000. They had 6,000 traps because they're only, you know, they're only like this wide, about that tall, about that deep. But the bottom six inches of the trap is concrete. So when you open the lid, clear your catch out of it, put the lid back like that, and throw it back overboard, it'll land right on the bottom with the flute up so the shit fuckers can still get in there. You know, so um, it only took, I mean, it's kick-ass work, dude. I mean, it'll make a fucking man out of you in a hurry. And, and Captain Billy's dad told me one day, he says, you may last one season, maybe two, and then you'll have, you'll have enough. And Sure as shit, it didn't take 
didn't take a week and they worked this guy's ass off to the point where he quit. <laughs> That's when they said, Timmy, come on, you know, get on board. Let's do this. You know, so they imparted to me how it all worked. You know, you get up in the morning at like three, four in the, you know, in the morning because it, it takes you, you know, three, four hours sometimes to get to where you're going to your line of traps you're going to pull that day. And we were doing 600 a day pulling traps. We do 300 one way. Trap line goes for maybe anywhere from, you know, 17 to 20 miles. And, you, you know, they're staggered about 30 yards apart. So when I'm picking one up by the buoy and pulling it through and pulling the trap up, my partner's already cleaned out and dropping his. So you pick one up, drop, pick one up, drop. So you're never, you always leave one where you pick one up at. When you get to the end of that line, 17, 18, 20 miles away, you sit. And by that time, it's probably... You know, if you're good enough, and we got yeah. damn good at it after a while, we found ways to cut corners and do shit, you know, and get do it proper. Um, by 10 o'clock in the morning, you're sitting there having lunch, you know, and then you move over 50 yards or 75 yards, and then you pull the other 300 back the same direction you came. So you're not twice as far away from where you began. And while you're doing and clearing these traps, we're doing what they call flipping, reaching in, and, and I'll show Put up, we'll put up a picture of what one of these fucking things looks like. I, and they have, the bull crabs have claws as big as my hand. Literally as big as my hand. And uh, what we do is we take the trap when we're clearing it. We open it, you know, clear the crab out of it. And we're throwing them over our shoulder because we've got fish boxes lining the deck that'll just, they, they just fall into. Because you don't want to take the crab, break the claw, and throw it back over because that stupid fucker will claw back into the trap again, you know, and you're catching crabs that you just took claws from, you know. So we wait till that entire trip is done, both lines, and then on the way back to the hill, it's called back, back to the dock. That's when we break and claw because you can take the crab and you're, we're actually harvesting them. You can break it in such a way at the first knuckle that you don't hurt the crab throw it back in the water and then within two years it'll have grown back another one legal size to take again so we're actually farming these things so it's you know it's a sustainable you know industry and we're not killing the product we're not killing this you know the sea life so this was how it was imparted to me that you know how you do this so i get out there and you know my first day on the boat we get on about three three in the morning and you know the bunks and i'll show you a picture of the boat the bunks that we slept in mark and i we're in the wheelhouse with the captain against the back wall in the window. Billy's captain's chair is just right over here. So we get out there, you know, and I'm, you know, I wake up and the, and the fucking sun's up. And I'm thinking, well, well, they told me they're starting right at daybreak, you know, because you got a lot of fucking work to do. So you start just as soon as the sun comes up to where you can first see that buoy. And then that's when you start working. But we get out there and the fucking sun's up and I lean over and I, I, I look out of the bunk and I look up at Captain Billy. He's got a big city and fucking grin on his face. And he goes, he says, Timmy, he says, buddy, we're not going to pull traps today. He says, we're just going to go offshore and hang out and swim and fuck off for, you know, the afternoon. And we'll go unload a pot boat from Columbia tonight. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> you know? But, you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, a, you know, it was, they shanghaied me, but it was a bit of a tongue in cheek for both of them, my, my buddy and Billy, because they knew what the fuck, but they saw they could get me out there and spring it on me. And I said, yeah, what the fuck? Cool. So yeah, we did just that. You know, we hung out out there and, you know, in about four hours or so before sunlight. Now, now I'm going to part to you how this whole scenario works. Um, um, 
particularly from my first and second time. The first mm-hmm. day I worked, this is my first day ever on that fucking boat. I didn't wow. pull. I didn't pull one goddamn yeah. trap. <laughs> you know, so you still don't know how to, uh, to 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 pull the crabs. Well, I mean, I hadn't pulled one yet. I still had to. You know, I mean, this did you is, ever? Oh yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ultimately, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, because you have to do that work in order to do the pot hauling because cover it up. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a fishing <laughs> boat. It's got to go out and work every day. Yeah. It's got to bring catch in and shit. You know, and that's mm-hmm. when the pot hauling takes place at night. You know, and there's a lot of opportunity where the boat would stay overnight. And it's not uncommon for a, for a fishing vessel of that size to, to, to stay overnight or have mm-hmm. any kind of a problems or issues or things like that. So they just decide to stay, you know, overnight and then pick up and fish a little bit the next day and then come back in. So that was kind of common. So it was not, you know, not anything uh, out of the ordinary that would stick out, you know, if you will. So um, we hung off out there for, you know, till about four or five hours before sundown. And, um, you know, and I'm listening, I'm right in on this shit. You know, I'm checking out, I'm watching what's going on. And Billy, Cap Billy gets on the radio and he has a, every boat that we have ever approached or ever unloaded has a very particular call sign that they will recognize. And it's different for every boat. So Captain Billy gets on there and he shouts this call sign three times in a row. I don't remember what the fuck it was, but, and then, you know, wait for an answer. A couple seconds goes by and he says it again. A couple seconds go by and they repeat that back to them. And they said to that, they repeated that call sign and said, come on. That's when we took off. So now what we are, where, as, where we are at this time is sitting on what they call the horizon. If you've ever been out on the water or even driving through the desert or on flatland, the further you get away, things shrink in the distance like this. And as soon as they shrink and go and disappear, that's your horizon line. We always stayed out of linear sight of the boat of the vessel should anything take place between the time we need to get there and whatever like that we go what boat what are you talking about we see it on radar but you know we can't see it that's when we make our move and go so they know that the boat that's coming to them is the one that should be and so we so we pull up there and you know uh, depending on how much material there is on the boat to get you know and this time in particular um my very first time out was uh, 15 tons they had on this boat. And that went on relatively easily. We, you know, I mean, we could, and it doesn't, didn't always often happen like where you could just pull out to the mothership, you know, and a lot of times, you know, the, the older generations would try to get that mother boat come close to shore as you can because the least amount of time you need to spend overnight getting it on shore because this whole thing has to happen between sun, sun down and sun up. You know, because we're wide exposed, dude, the sun's up. Um, it go out there and have them just toss them down onto our boat. And Mark and I would be stacking them and pushing them and whatever. And Billy would help if their boat was small enough that we could throw a line up and tie to. But if it was a freighter or something we're working on, Billy had to stay in the wheelhouse and keep the boat up against it. Because if them fuckers fell in the water, there are bits to get, I mean, they're 80 pounds, dude. There are bits to get back over the rail, you know, so... 30,000 30, pounds we gather and we bring it in and we get to just outside what's called the 10,000 Islands here in, in, um, out in Southwest Florida. And it's literally a labyrinth of 10,000 islands. It takes up 20 miles of coastline. That's nearly two miles deep. And it's just waterways and turns and shit like that where we played as kids. You know, we get you in there, dude, you're gone. <laughs> you know, you might as well wait for somebody to come and rescue your ass because, you know, 
we know how to get you there and we know how to get you and get our asses out. But barring that, that boat, now we're loaded and we're chugging into shore as quick as we can get in there. And, you know, it's probably one in the morning by this time, two in the morning. And we shut the engines off and that's when all the little boats from in town, they're going to offload us because we can't go through the pass with this boat. I mean, it's drafting six feet. There ain't no fucking way this, I mean, you got 30,000 pounds on this fucking thing. So it's going to sit a little. So all the boats, 15, 20, sometimes 25, depending on how many were needed, would come out to us. Two guys on each boat. And the earlier days they were using what's called a well boat. It was a, a boat used for catching uh, and, and netting pompano and mullet, which were, you know, shallow water bait fish that were in the back bays and stuff. So these had to go through really very shallow water. And then um, they were also using at the time boats that were built called T-Crafts. And they had twin 235 horsepower Evinrudes on them. And each boat would take, you know, 20, 30, 40 bales, whatever they could get on them. Because they have the guy driving the boat and a guy on the other, you know, with them, a mate. He would jump on our, all those other guys would jump on our boat and throw and load their own boats and shit. Because this has got to happen, man. And I'm throwing, you know, wherever I can throw. And they're off and back and making as many trips through the passes to Chukalusky Island, which is, you know, 129 acre little slice of paradise that we wound up on in the backside of all these islands. And they would take this stuff and literally put it in one or two of my friend's houses that we've taken the furniture out of (laughs) and stack this shit full, you know, with 30,000 pounds. That's one house full, maybe. The whole house. The whole fucking house. I mean, bathroom, kitchen, dining room, bedrooms. Like a three I mean, or four bedroom. Anywhere you can stick yeah. a fucking bale of weed, it was in there, you know? And then a lot of times, you know, because the vehicles that have to drive this shit to Miami the next day, that's the next thing coming up. A lot of those drivers would come out to where the house is being loaded at night and, and load their vehicle there. Vans, cars, trucks, you know, pickup trucks, anything that, um, you know, um, um, Broncos like that with blacked out windows, anything that you could stick a fucking bale of pot in, we were using. And they would come out and load, a lot of them would load at that time, drive back into town and park it in the front yard in the front of their house and leave it there till the next day, full of pot. And everybody working these crews, you know, we had over 200 what they call two meter radios. They had a five-digit combination. They had 200 of them. So just to make sure everybody working had one. And they're virtually unscannable at that time, so you could talk freely and openly. But it was important for everybody working to have communication to know exactly what the fuck was going on. So everybody had a radio, you know, which was kind of cool. So these guys would, you know, during the, the next day when the sun comes up, um, the guy running the shore crew, whoever one of the bosses, would start sending these cars and trucks and vans and stuff that were preloaded at intervals out of town and to Miami. Now, the only way, there's only one fucking road out of town. That's Highway 29. And there's only one fucking road to Miami, and that's US 41. So there's, I mean, that's it. Now you've got a 120-mile trip to make across to get to, you know, to Miami where this shit was going because we never owned the shit. We never wanted to own it. We never wanted to sell it. We never wanted to bother with all the mechanics of that bullshit because there's too many open ends, too many, too many, you know, people that you got to deal with and involved in that. We were what the government described as service providers. 
you want your fucking weed. We can go get it for you and we can put it on your doorstep in Miami for $175 a pound. However fucking much you want, we'll take care of the whole fucking shot. And that's the way it worked. Our drivers would then in turn have a particular spot to go to in Miami, say just off of Chrome Avenue in, 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 a, in a Western little, little city called um, Kendall and meet up in a plaza or a strip mall somewhere, go in and park. And one of, we'd have one of our guys with the Cubans that owned the shit standing there going, oh, that's our truck and that's our van, that's our car. And, you know, you could get 11 bales in a car. You know, take the back seat out and all that kind of shit, you know, and anything that would move the pot, you know. And the, What do they wrap like at that time? Are they just all saran wrapped up or what is it? No. Um, ultimately, they wound up being compressed nice um, in, in, in a hard, in a, in, a, in a heavy mill plastic, folded over, duct taped, stuffed inside a burlap bag, which is typically a, a sugar or a coffee bag, and then stitched shut. Uh, we'll put up a picture of this of what they looked like. In the earlier days, they were a mess. I mean, I'll get to that. But um, our guys would drive in the parking lot, the guys and gals and whatnot like that, get out of the vehicle and go window shop. The Cuban partners would put a guy in it, take it somewhere wherever their stash house was, empty it and bring it back, get out of it. Our guy would get it and go back and if there was time, get another load and come back. Now, that buffer was put in place for one or several reasons. And one in particular was that if anything ever happened, that fucking Cuban guy didn't know where the shit came from. And nine times out of 10, whoever was driving that vehicle didn't know where it was fucking come from because it was loaded for them and they were come over to the house and take it. So nobody could tell anybody where the shit came from, you know? Plausible deniability. Exactly. And that's what the government's um, ultimately coined a, a term dead drop. Because that's what a dead drop literally is. You get in, you get away from it, and somebody else takes it. So neither side ever met one another. Our crew never met the Cuban crew. You know, we were always kept distant. The only people who knew anybody were the older adults who knew, who actually owned the shit, whose shit it was. They were the, the big mucks. You know, so um, that's how it works when we get to Miami. But So it was going from the Colombians to the Cubans. Yes. Like ultimately, ultimately, that's how it worked. And the, okay, and the reason why there was guys like myself or even the generations prior to me is simply because the Cubans and, the, and, and Colombians do not get along. <laughs> they don't fucking trust one another. I don't give a fuck what you're doing. It's just so they stick a gringo like me in the middle, you know, and fortunately for them, they got our side. You know, they got the Everglades gringos to do this because of all the places in the world to be able to do something and get away with something like this. This is the only place that can happen because of that beautiful and wonderful labyrinth of islands that Mother Nature saw fit to build in our backyard, man. If people haven't, to, for, to understand it too, like what the Everglades is, I mean, it is literally thousands of left turn, right turn, two lefts, all, and you do this for an hour before you get to anywhere that's like, oh yeah, here's an island or here's where people are parked or here's where right. people live. Right. It, it's mind blowing the maze. Right. It is. And um, particularly in uh, among the 10,000 islands, you know, one of my buddies, my best, one of my best buddies was actually one of my crew. He was a 
supervisor for the uh, United States um, National Park Service, Ranger Service. He was a park ranger. <laughs> he worked with me. Um, his job, you know, typically during the day was to go out and find these lost motherfuckers that went out there in kayaks and canoes and don't understand that there's a fucking tide, you know, that runs six knots through these islands and you're not paddling. I mean, if you catch it wrong, dude, you're trying to come back on an outgoing tide, you're fucked. Or they just quite simply don't know where the fuck they're at. Because you can be on one side of the island and lost, but on the other side of the island is Chukaluski Bay and the road and the highway and everybody, you wouldn't even know it, you know? I mean, it's just that way. So you're right. I mean, it is, you know, we did use that to our advantage to, you know, for a number of reasons and a number of times. But So um, that first load goes down. Yeah. You're like, I love this. I'm like, okay, well, this is cool. (laughs) You know, I can do this, you know? And, uh. So we go back in and, you know, the next morning, wake up and we, you know, get up early and we go out again. And, you know, I'm, I'm fixing to pull traps and nah, I wake up, fucking sun's up again, <laughs> 22 tons that night. So my first two days working on this fucking fishing boat, I didn't f- see the first trap. <laughs> All I saw was bales of fucking weed, you know, and, um, that's just how it, you know, that's how it began for me, you know, but, um, one thing I need to interject into, in, you know, as part of this mechanism and how it works was the safety measures that we had installed, you know, for our own protection. Uh, one being that, you know, there is a hierarchy of, of pay with regards to how the, everything works. If, if you're going offshore and unloading these boats, I tripped this. The whole thing that I got involved in is a, is a, is is a Forrest Gump effect. I just tripped and fell from one fucking thing to the next, man, you know, without even, you know, trying, you know, so, um, you know, going offshore and, you know, and doing this for those, you know, those first two times, I got rookie pay. I got five grand each night for that. And I thought, well, God damn, man, you know, because at that time, the average- Yeah, because 175 times tons, that's a lot. Well, yeah, if you're Nightly. talking 40,000 pounds and $775 a pound, you're probably you're near $15 million. Nightly. Yeah. And that's only if you're For doing- people to understand. Nightly. Yeah. That's on the, on like, the average, you know, two, three nights a week for our boat. And, I, and I'd be willing to guess that this type of shit was going on for other stuff too, probably. Well, for it, other boats and, you know, other. Well, yeah. There's a, like, yeah, it's a, but, it's a, it was a similar situation. Like, if you're living to cocaine, just, it, yeah, no, Robert, we never fucked with Not you guys, but I'm sure he said, I'm sure there was definitely uh, oh, yeah. other boats doing the same thing, but yeah. doing other things. Just right. to wrap yeah. your head around how much money a week is going on and how right. long that's been going on. It's just right. fucking insane. Well, when you talk about that end of the business with regards to cocaine, Miami was literally built on cocaine that's, money. I can remember go. I can remember driving over to Coral Gables, which is just slightly west of you know Miami downtown, Miami proper, and looking off over the skyline and seeing no less than twenty six tower cranes building high rise condos, <laughs> and it was all cocaine money, and there were more Mercedes, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Mercedes Benz dealerships than any other city in the country at that time because of it. And then when the government came in and did their shit and rid of themselves of Griselda fucking Blanco, if you know who this bitch was, she was the queen and the godmother of cocaine who taught Pablo Escobar the trade. That's who she fucking is. 
And the reason I know this is, and we'll get into it, is because my guy I work with, the boss in Colombia, was a cousins to the Ochoa brothers of the Cali, who were originally the Medellin. And when that crazy ass fucker started shooting planes out of the sky to kill a congressman, they wasn't even on the fucking thing. They said, yeah, we're done. Uh They went and began Cali and started Cali or working with the, you know, Gerardo, the big guy. But wild. Yeah. I mean, that's my, that's how close I am to that connection, you know, being this, you know, this guy being their cousin. And also I can, I know that story. So when you talk about cocaine cowboys, you're talking about Griselda Blanco because and and everybody in Miami who was anybody wanted to be the guy, man, you know, but she was the type of person that would kill people just like she'd order a fucking pizza. I mean, she was just the wickedest, cruelest motherfucker and turned Miami into what Time Magazine um, during um, 1981, I believe it was called Paradise Lost. And they were the reason why the local law enforcement had to change the uh, their method of um, um, protecting themselves from fought from um, 38s and 45 and uh, and 45s to automatic weapons because she developed first of all the uh, motorcycle drive-by assassination she invented that plus the first hint the government had of how dangerous and how 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 things had changed was when something that was called the Dadeland Mall massacre took place. And it was a shootout between Colombians and Cubans in a, in a crown liquor store in this mall. And what shocked them and knew that the game had changed is that they didn't work mob style. Mob style is kill the person you're there to kill. And that's it. Their style was to kill everybody that was inside. Not just the three people you want to kill, kill everybody in the store and then run out shooting in the parking lot. That's the, that's the way they worked. And it changed the ball game. And well, that's the cocaine end of it. And we never wanted to be involved in that shit because quite simply, another, re- another way it worked was because not only the safety, if we're offshore unloading a boat and we've got this goddamn thing that's got 20 tons on it and it's barely chugging along, man, and there's no hiding this shit. This shit isn't below deck and, and anything like that. It's on the bow. It's on the sides. It's on the roof of the fucking wheelhouse, just high enough for the radar to turn. You know, and all the way to the back of this 51-foot boat, you've got 20,000, maybe sometimes 25,000 pounds, 50,000, 60,000 pounds on this fucking boat. And it's going down. It ain't moving very quick. Mm -hmm. So we've got what we call a chase boat working and running right alongside of us. There's a picture of one in the boat, my boat, my my chase boat, which that is, is this is just typically a driver on a boat that can go about 80 miles an hour before your ass even hits the seat. (laughs) A big offshore powerful. In my case, it was a 31-3 Chris Craft with uh, with, um, three 200 offshore Mercs on it, 600 horsepower riding there. So the captains, once we load the boat, captain's job begins he's watching the radar and he's making sure and he's doing his shit he's he's dialed into everything around him and we're running blank black we're running dark red light in the wheelhouse to 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 keep your night vision so you don't go in you can still see but you don't lose your night vision once you go outside and he's watching the radar and if there's anything on the radar up to 50 miles is is what it can is what we can see if there's a target that appears within that scope of range and it appears like it's moving toward us, he can, as it gets closer, shrink that radar down to 20 miles, to 25, to, to 15 miles. And then 
if that target looks like it's coming to that boat, we just get off and get into that fucking fast, that go fast there and go fucking let them have it. <laughs> We're gone, you know, because first of all, people running the boat didn't own it. Mm-hmm. Billy's dad owned the boat. And the minute the boat, if it ever happened, the minute the boat would have been stopped, the first thing Billy would have done was call his dad on the radio and say, hey, call the cops. Mm-hmm. His dad would get on the radio and say, hey, I just looked out at the dock and noticed our boat's gone, man. Somebody jacked our fucking boat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that relieves the owner of the vessel or car or truck and or whatever is being used. That's how it worked. Relieve the owner of any responsibility of what that thing had been involved in and they'll get it back. That was the beauty of it. But, and we got away. Now the people on the road driving, I mean, we're talking about 20 drivers, 25 drivers driving back and forth. 41 all day long. Their safety measure was involved no less than any between eight and 12, what we called spotters. Guys that were paid five grand a day to just drive from Everglades City to that mall back and forth in staggered forms. And there was always a guy somewhere on the road. a day. Five grand a day. In just those to, days, that's, I mean, that's just fucking, to drive the one, fucking one car mile, back that's and 35 forth. 35 G's a week. It's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. bread. But it's doable, you know? Yeah. So that way, if somebody on the road got stopped for whatever reason, and which was very rare because when you're in those types of very, I mean, rural is not the word to use. I mean, you're out in the middle of bumfuck. There's no, I mean, it's not like being in a city where there's 15 cops that can be there, you know, and next thing you know, they're, you know, here they are screaming and sliding. And well, no, there's maybe two highway patrol officers. There's maybe one Marine patrol officer working that day because there's only two in Everglades. There may be, you know, um, the United States park rangers, but they don't do shit, anything out on the road. There may be a wildlife officer out there, but everybody who was working in any of those government or, or official positions, we had somebody looking at them. We know exactly where the fuck they were. But should somebody get stopped, they were instructed to wait, you know, because now if you're in a car, you've got another thousand pounds of shit in that fucking thing. Now that car weighs 3,000 better plus pounds. Wait for whoever stopped you to get between you and them throw that fucker in reverse and punch it and just take out his front fucking end, man. <laughs> I mean, mash the fuck out of it because he ain't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you're for sure not going to outrun the radio because he's bound to call somebody from somewhere on the other end to, you know, it might take them a bit to get there, but all they needed to do at that time was get out of sight of that fucking guy. And there's a spotter waiting right there to pick you up, get in the car and you're gone. Let him have the fucking thing. But the minute you get stopped, you see the lights or whatever, fucking like that. Hey, dude, I'm up. They call whoever owned that fucking car and say, dude, I just looked out in the driveway. My shit's gone, man. <laughs> Somebody stole my fucking car, my truck, or whatever the fuck it is. And they get it back. <laughs> oh, man. But those were the valves in- involved within the safety. But now you're talking about the cocaine thing. I, none of us ever wanted to, I mean, to, I mean, the time you got for that shit was mm-hmm. more severe than, you know, than the slap on the wrist at the time, which it appeared to be for, for weed. Plus it was what we did best. It's what we knew how to do. It's how we grew up, you know, and it was nonviolent for one thing. We were families and generational. And, you know, when you, when you think about it, you know, and I don't know a lot of people, you know, are, are going, who in the right mind would put their kids in a situation like that? Well, 
We were put in a situation like that because the parents deemed it was safe enough to do. What parent in their right mind would put their child at risk if there was any kind of a risk of, you know, a gunfight or some stupid shit like that? But when you're working at a level such as, as that, there is no violence. And I'll tell you why in, in just a second. But, um, you know, the kids could work and learn the industry because the, the adults aren't damn sure out there unloading them fucking freighters and moving that shit, you know, 800 and 1,000 of those fuckers twice a night. Now the fucking kids are doing that shit, man. The adults are out there pointing, you know, doing this and that, you know, we're the workhorse, you know. So um, that's how the, mecha the mechanics of it all works, basically, like that. And the boats yeah. dropping it off, were they always different? Oh, yeah. It was always just some, it was either a huge boat or a smaller, but it was. It came in all different. I've wow. seen it come in every different kind of vessel. And I've seen it come wrapped and bundled in, in, in some really fucking odd ways, man. I mean, it's the surprising ways because, you know, there at one point, and I'll, I'll start off by saying the, the evolution of the bale of pot to look like what the Mexican brickweeds look like, those bales, those rectangular oblong bales, and they'll have the origins of how that began. In the very beginning when we we're unloading these boats, the fucking shit was, I mean, it wasn't compressed. A lot of the bales from wherever we got them from, you know, from whatever part of the northern coast of Colombia between um, Cartagena and Santa Marta, and including Banquia City and the Ronquilla Peninsula, Depending on what family you worked with, this is the style of work that you got from these fuckers. And at this point, you know, earlier on in like the 80, 81 years, this shit looked like somebody just threw it in a bag, stomped on it with their fucking foot, mm -hmm. taped it shut, and then put it in, a, in another um, burlap bag and then tied that shut. So they were coming in all different shapes, sizes, you know, depending on how the shit was coming in. I mean, it was just... No stack and no rhyme or reason to it. And, you know, and who the fuck knows how many times these things have been handled before we even got them. And there, a lot of them are coming apart. You know, the bag's got a hole in them and the shit's, I mean, seedy like we were talking about. I mean, seeds, I mean, the fucking A. We'd get on these freighters and a lot of times it isn't just pull out there and the shit starts raining down on your boat from the other crew. You got to hop your ass up in there and help them get down below, you know, particularly in the larger boats. And I've seen boats with as much as two, 300,000 pounds on them out of vessels that were 400 feet if they're a goddamn foot. And we'd have to go literally climb up. The captain's job was to keep our boat against that one because there's no way to tie off. They're 16 feet up to their weather deck. That's how big this fucking thing is. And get down in the hole and literally build a pyramid out of bales, bunches of bales that you could put one guy on here, 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 and a guy on top and bucket brigade this shit up high enough where the guys on the deck could reach it and put it on the deck. And when they threw enough on the deck that they think was enough for the load, you know, you know, Billy would be up there. That's enough, you know, because we can only take so much, you're going to sink the fucking boat. Then we would get out and this is, there's no time for Hey, how you doing? I'm Tim. And you know, <laughs> nobody talks. Nobody says anything. You just go right to fucking work because you gotta beat the sun. You know, you got you got a ways to go yet with this shit. And you know, um, it was so nasty. And the reason I've got saying that got down in those holes is, 
you know, I look at my buddy Mark one one night, we're doing this shit. He's got seeds from stuck in his sweat all over his face. He looked like a fucking sesame seed bun. And I started laughing. I said, dude, you should see your face. And he goes, no, man, you should see yours. <laughs> <laughs> they're busted open and oh, they just and come out. You're trying to Not get- all of them, but yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of shake and shit, you know, and there's resin dust flying all through the fucking place, you know, and shit. So we get the stuff on our boat. Long story short, we get it into shore. Shore crew comes out, they come out and take it from us and do their thing, you know, and then it's our job to go offshore and clean the boat up. And Jesus Christ, we'd be three, four fucking hours at, and it'd be like three in the morning and the sun would be coming up and we're, you got down there with knives and screwdrivers and the little cracks and shit looking for any one fucking seed because if there should have been in any way something suspect mm-hmm. and they decided to go out and approach different boats if they find one seed on your boat you're fucked so that was i mean it was nasty it was fucked up and we did a few loads like that you know and then captain billy gets this brilliant idea he buys two rolls of visqueen and a couple of rolls of duct tape and when we get ready to load and you know approach the boat and do the job we line the entire deck of the boat over the rails and duct tape it in like a big bowl Start loading that fucking shit and taking care of it that way and get into shore, get rid of it, go offshore. And all we had to do is pull it all up like this and tie a chain and an anchor to it and throw it overboard, <laughs> you know. But it, as a result of that, you know, and, and one thing that needed to be understood by everybody was that once we take control of your shit, whosoever it is, it's our responsibility. And you're bringing shit like this and we got to fuck with it like this. No, 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 no. So that's when the advent in the early 80s, the advent of the household and commercial trash compactors started being, you know, coming on the scene. That's when they said, look, here's what you fucking need to do. (laughs) So they started pressing them and now they're coming out, you know, perfect weight, 70, maybe 80 pounds, something like that. All the same size, all the same weight, all the same shape. And they stacked beautifully on the deck and you could handle them better. You know, so what that meant was now the loads are getting bigger because it's more organized. You know, it's they got their their, their shit together now. If there's writing on the outside of these bales, as as the or is there like markings? Is right, it, or that's is what it I, just I, the I'm trying to run through yeah, my head yeah. the markings and stuff like that. Was why I got confused like, because back in the day, cocaine they would stamp them with like a you know they a, would put a, 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 scorpion, a scorpion on or, or something this, like that, and or like how much weight in the corner, like or you know, or is it just you okay. know like this I was, is a bale? It's what confused pounds. me when I was trying yeah, to understand yeah, yeah, what yeah. it was you were where you were going for there. No, there were no particular markings on the bales that came later, and that came. At a, uh, as a result of a fuck up, of, of a few fuck ups that mm-hmm. were, I mean, they were minor, but nevertheless, they were fuck ups. Mm-hmm. But um, um, they would virtually just come in um, coffee, burlap coffee bags, because they were buying them from the, or taking them from the coffee companies, because that's one of their biggest exports in Colombia was coffee. Oh, that so makes the burlap total. bags that they put the coffee in, they're buying them and they're using those. Sugar was another one. Sugar was a lot of the, um, was a lot of burlap, but there was also a lot of those early days, uh, nylon mesh burlap looking type of bags. We were taking so much fucking shit that I started seeing the shit coming in. And I never knew this, that, um, I was seeing in, in Purina lion chow bags, Purina elephant chow bags, 
And I'm thinking, I didn't know Purina made fucking, but for zoos. Mm -hmm. So now they're, they're running out of coffee and sugar bags. Now they're buying those bags from the zoo. (laughs) And they get a hold of that made sense. I saw 40,000 pounds of shit, 47,000 pounds of lion's breath come out of Jamaica boxed in Marlboro boxes. Lion's breath. Yeah. Oh, wow. In Marlboro fucking labeled fucking boxes. I mean, it got ridiculous after a while because we were just, I mean, ridiculousness of the amounts that we're, that we're talking about, you know, um, made it as such, you know, but, um, when you talk about any particular mark, it's, you know, it's funny when I think about this because there was, you know, there was so much shit coming into Southwest Florida, dude. There were, at, there were at times boats lined up offshore, like it was a fucking parking lot. We couldn't get to them fast enough, you know, and, you know, they, um, um, I went to stray off here for, for a little bit. Um, they, um, we had gone out and unloaded a boat, you know, we said, we told them, you know, hey, this is who we are. And like that. We're, cause we're talking on a radio that can be talked on. So we go out and we unload this fucking boat. And we bring shit in, job normal uh, as normal. Next day we find out, hey, dude, you unloaded our boat. <laughs> <laughs> you unloaded the wrong fucking boat. Wow. So when we said, and again, and Billy just says, okay, well, then go out and unload this one. <laughs> you did that one. And that was, a, you know, a couple fuck ups like that. Mm-hmm. So what I learned was when I started going to Columbia and I was buying the weight that I was buying and they're kicking the bales down as I'm picking them out, I would spray on the bale with a paint, a particular mark. So I know when I sent a boat to go get this shit that they were getting the shit that I looked at, you know, not something, you know, but the, the boss, I call him, I would never do that to me anyways. You know, he was, he, he liked me immediately and people always have, and even he called me Timmy. You know, and I wish I'm fond of being called Timmy, you know, I don't care. Yeah, so cool. it was like straightforward business back then. It, it wasn't, was. there wasn't like, you're worried about the switcheroos and all this weird stuff. And they just wanted a good connection and people that would work hard. Right. Wow, you know, and that's man. one of the, the most common misconceptions that people have about that industry mm-hmm. at that time, you know, gunfights and stupid shit like that did take place. You know, and it took place among other pot haulers that weren't as sophisticatedly run the way we were, you know, and not run and not family oriented as well. You know, they're just out to make a buck and they're going to sell their own shit and make their money that way. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to fuck with that shit. Get it out of the fucking way and be done with it. And another reason why we never fucked with the cocaine was simply because not only were the times given out different in the, in the, in the, the caliber of people that you had to fuck with? No, we didn't want any part of that shit, you know, yeah. because, you know, Blanco, she was, she was just, I mean, nobody wanted to get near that. Um, plus, how it works is, you know, when we bring a load in, let's say I bring 30,000 pounds of weed in for you. You've given, and I could go literally to, to Columbia and buy 30,000 pounds for $300,000 for $10 a pound. <laughs> That's why they love this, love me so much. Now, I bring that 30,000 pounds from Columbia back to South Florida, which voyage takes anywhere between six to eight days, you know, depending on any unforeseen weather patterns. And when I get within United States territorial waters, mm-hmm. that ten dollar a pound shit now became five hundred to seven hundred and fifty a pound. 
So I have literally taken this dumbass's cocaine cowboys, 300 grand, which to any of us, that was three days and three nights at, and a weekend in, in South Beach, you know, pissing it away. And I just turned this asshole's $300,000 into 15 fucking million. If it's for $5, 500 a pound, mm-hmm. minus my cost for doing a job that size would be about 5 million. So I gave him $10 million off of 300,000 in eight days. You think this fucker's shooting at me? He can't give me enough money to go back, you know? And when they talk about violence again at that level, and there isn't. And the reason for that is it's all simply mathematics. If I can take $300,000 in eight days, give this guy $10 million back, he's a happy motherfucker. But if you take the math and do it a little bit further, and you take that $300,000 original investment and and divide it back into 9,700,000, you get the number 32. What that number represents is I have now 32 chances to get his next load in. I can lose literally the first 31 loads. And if I get that 32nd load in, they still made money. They haven't lost money. That's how ridiculous the prices, variation, and difference is. And I never lost a load. One that I never gave away, that's for sure. And people say, well, what do you mean give it away? And I know that went through your head. (laughs) If I'm buying this shit for $10 a pound Mm -hmm. and, you know, Anybody has any inkling or any thoughts or any, you know, ill feeling about maybe this is not the right night or, you know, it's going to be, you know, it might be a little rough, might be a little sketchy or something like that. I, I have literally bought 17,000 pounds of shit for $170,000. I buy, you know, I'll buy $17,000, 17,000 pounds of shit. I'll put it on somebody's dumbass fucking old boat and put it adrift off of, off of Naples and have one of my buddies in Marco Island say, hey, call and say, hey, there's a boat sitting out there offshore, the lights off and shit. I think maybe I'll check it out. They'll go out there and check it out. Score! Next thing you know, everybody's on that fucking boat and I'm moving 60,000 pounds in down here while they're all they're fucking around. You know, so those are the only thing I ever lost and I never lost because I made a million five off of doing that. So it only cost me 170 grand. You know, they're just stupid shit like that. You know, and you were able, just able to do that. And, and did everyone keep their mouth shut? Or was that where I was ever, a lot of people you, you ever? That was one of the most remarkable things about the story that, you, that you'll read is that a town of under 500 and half of it involved and it was never spoken of. And when I would go out and work at night, you know, go out, get a load, come back in. I'm standing on this mountain and all these boats come up. I know. Almost everybody that's up there tossing bales, but you're not talking. There's no time to talk and bullshit and hey, dude, and this and that kind of shit. You know, it's get that fucking shit done. You know, it's hump bales until you puke, literally. When you're done puking, you start back in and you hump more bales because, you know, you can't stop. And then the next day or next night, if it happens to be an off night and we're in town at a club or something like that all together, it's never spoken of. Remember last night we were doing that? No, that shit never happened. And we, and the trust thing was a remarkable thing in the way it happened because, you know, I mean, we're talking about a bunch of families and we were taught by the older generations as far as that goes. We were also taught because of the ridiculous amounts of money that 21, 20 and 21 year olds are making at that time, 
how to spend money without having anything to show for it. Because if you started spending money on stupid things like Ferraris and fucking bling and all kinds of stupid shit, you just didn't work anymore, man. You were done. Yeah, because you're supposed to be basically a crab, doing crab fishing or or some type of fishing. And and crabbing is, you know, it's a lucrative business in and of itself. I mean, it's not uncommon during a season to to make in a week 1200 bucks or even 2500 bucks. But to pull up in a Ferrari, it's not. Yeah, no, 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 no. I had a Corvette (laughs) only simply because that job could afford me to buy the Corvette. And guys could buy some really cool shit, man. But, you know, when you drive onto the island and. Let me get this thing going. Yo, what up? It's Blackleaf. I'm here at Grow Generation. And guess what? Drip Hydro storming the market. All the best growers I know are switching to it. And guess what? There's a reason. Because it's preserving terps. I keep hearing that. Preserving terps. And that's why we're here with Sunshine. Facility advisor, facility manager. Overall, the man with Drip Hydro. Listen to why it's different, man. What's going on, guys? Sunny here with Drip Hydro. Thing is, at the end of the day, we just wanted to make a simple, clean, cost-effective nutrient line that nobody has really seen on the market right now. Nobody uses really our chelation formulas, uh, the micronutrients that we have pulled to make this line is really just what makes it overall bringing that consistency and quality back to what we want to see in growing herb again. And overall, at the end of the day, it's still really light on your wallet. It's a five-part nutrient line. And again, if you're not staying sterile or you have a big facility and you don't want to run rock wool and you want to run a mix of cocoa with an enzyme or something, you don't even have to run flow with it. So at the end of the day, it's just saving you money on your wallet while bringing the consistency and the quality of terps back. We wanted to bring the terps back and bring the soul back to growing versatility cost effective and quality i mean what else can you ask for drip hydro first smoke of the day blackleaf approved peace so we got a special offer for you guys whether you go in person or you order online any grow generation over 60 nationwide retailers the code is first smoke 10 and you're going to get 10 percent off an additional 10 percent off your already discounted price use the code first smoke 10 tell them the first smoke family sent you they're going to take care of you Support the show, hop on the Patreon. We got new shows dropping, we got off the mic. We have so much stuff in store for you guys and stuff dropping every single week. Hop on the Patreon, first smoke of the day. New shows, checking in with Pack Odds and Blackleaf. We're doing a live each month and a lot of other shit. Off we the haven't mic. told you guys yet. Make sure you get on the Patreon. We'll see you guys soon. Peace. Mind Eraser. Talk about that Corvette. Yeah. Well, and that and just being yeah, able well, to the not thing show of it the is, money. Is you drive out onto the island and you don't see anything unusual or out of the ordinary. There's trailers, you know, that are pretty decently well-kept and trailers. And a lot of the houses that were on the island belong to some of the older, you know, families that have been there at some time. But where the difference was made was when you opened the trailer door and walked inside. That's when you have the finest Berber carpet. You have all the leather furniture, all the latest appliances and and electronic gear and stereo. I mean, all that cool shit inside the house where nobody can see it, you know, or do something crazy like go to Miami or South Beach with a couple of buddies and take each a couple hundred thousand dollars and take over the tab for the club for the night. You know, <laughs> and you know, between two, three, or four, one day, one uh, three day weekend actually it was a four day weekend. We spent four days over on over in Miami and South Beach, and we each took a couple hundred grand a piece. We had a million dollars between us, and we went over there for four days, 
with the sole intention of coming back with just enough gas money to get home. <laughs> That's that was the plan. <laughs> are you uh, are you the flour that you're getting? Are you breaking some off to try? Are you ever trying any, or are oh, you just fuck like yeah, yeah, yeah? Oh fuck! What yeah. are some of the? Do you remember some of the really good ones? Yeah, it was mostly the Jamaican shit. Was better than the Colombian. Yeah. Well, there were some. You know, it depended on you know, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, and and like I said, I, you know, it's interesting to hear how Randy's, you know, worked his shit out in, in Colombia because I dealt with one guy, one family myself. He was he was a connection inherited by the older generations. And I worked, you know, I took this this one guy's shit and he had growers, you know, as far away as, well, Santa Marta, which is almost the other side of Colombia in northern Colombia, you know, so he had a lot of different growers. and. That's why when I go down there to, you know, to look and pick out the shit. Look, this uh, guy, the boss would give me. First time I went down, I would go down and walk down between these rows of, I mean, mountains of fucking bales running down through the fucking jungle, sticking them with this pipe, pulling out some of it and smoking it in the boss's pipe. Oh, like a tester needle, and checking almost. it out. Yeah, you know, I'm poking them, you know, and grabbing them shit. And I'm like, that's not bad, you know. And I got my buddy Ruben, who's interpreting for me, because this guy doesn't speak a lick of fucking English, right? And I'm just like, you know, how many of those fuckers you got? You know, kick them down here. And the guys would start kicking down two, three hundred of them, or whatever there was of them. And I'd spray my, you know, particular mark on them, and the guys would tote them back and weigh them. When I got to the amount that I was there to get. <laughs> That was the end of it. We go back to the house and have a great evening. So that was like the the old school distro, like the what they have at distros now, where you literally go and you pick out your product, and it comes from all over the countryside, right. which probably got brought in on. I mean, donkeys. Pretty, got brought a lot of in times, on, donkeys because right? you would find yeah. that the buds that you would get would be in little nugs, oh. like this, you know, rolled in little nugs, and that's because the way the donkeys walk. And they shift those bags back and forth and it takes those buds and it rolls them like this. If people have ever been in those days and are wondering why they got their shit that way, that's why it got that way. But I'm checking this shit because you're taking from different growers throughout that region and they're growing different shit. So I'm not going down there to buy shit, you know, because this one family, this one dude had the, you know, what I needed didn't necessarily mean I needed to buy all his, you know, to just go, give me that pile. I needed to try it. And um, at this point, are most of the bales packaged the same way when you're picking them out or are they looking different? Like you can tell this is from one family. This is from a different. They're all bailed in, 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 in similar, in, in similar ways. Okay. Right. Interesting, man. <laughs> Very interesting. But um, how, did, you know, how did you get, so you said the Jamaicans had the best stuff. Like, how did you, I guess I should say, like, how did how did you and your group get linked with like the Cubans, the Jamaicans, the Colombians? You know, like, was it just like the higher ups would you know? That was send the older the right generations who made those original connections, and those connections and those they other just knew that's an entry. Yeah, they they knew that the you know the the like I said, we're family, and the people that we're hauling from throughout those years were family and generational as well. The guy in Columbia that I knew inherited that house, that mansion, and all of that from his father. So it continued on. But the best stuff came out of Jamaica and was pretty interesting um, because um, 
and we did a lot of lot of Jamaican wheat because at that time in the early eighties, the the main export out of Jamaica, which actually ran the country's economy, was ganja. And everybody in the government knew it. And it went on for years like that until they asked for assistance and aid from the United States government. And they said, you know what? End this ganja bullshit and we'll help you out, you know? And that's what kind of ended it. But up until that point, you know, through my people that I was introduced, of course, then you get introduced to someone else and shit like that. So I'm down there one day. This is funny as shit. I'm down there one day with our boat. We're loading right in the middle of the fucking daytime. We're on the south end of the island, on the, we- on the east end near the Blue Mountains. Um, Kingston's only about 60 miles the other direction west of us. And we're at the dock loading up this fucking awesome fucking weed. And I'm backed away from the crew and I'm sitting under this palm tree in this other uh, sea grape tree, you know, chilling. And I hear this crashing in the bushes next to me and out walks this old Rasta dude, man. He had the gnarliest dreads down to his ass. He had on cut off ragged fucking jean shorts, no shoes, toenails, just fucking, I mean, gnarly. And in his hand, he's got a wad of ganja bud. And he's just doing this with it, you know, kind of rolling it and breaking it with one hand like this. And he takes it, he puts it in both hands and he rolls it out like this and he gets it about maybe this, this long. And he reaches over to a banana tree and he takes a dried banana leaf off the tree and shapes it and squares it off like this, lays that ganja he rolled up into it, rolls it back up, gives it a good lick and fires it up. (laughs) And he takes a puff off of this thing and he hands it to me. And the first time I ever smoked weed, even, I mean, ganja from a a dried banana leaf off a banana tree, it had the most awesome flavor to it, dude. It was amazing because if you think about it, there's no going to the fucking Circle K, 7-Eleven to buy in fucking papers. And, you know, the myth goes back in the days and people are like, smoking banana leaves, that's crazy. Well, no, cool you're not smoking. No, smoking banana peels, they're saying. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no you're not. No. It's the leaf off the tree that's like tobacco when you roll. It's like, you know, Jerry's wrap. You know, it's yeah, similar it like to that. Husk, like a corn husk almost. But a, but a really... Um, soft, flexible, soft, leaf. flexible, rollable. You know, when it when it dried up, you didn't get them when they were like, you know, like this. You get them and just ride the right. You know, you pick the right one. And he hands it to me, and you know, we're puffing away in this fucking thing. And he goes, he goes, hey, mom. He says, um, I got two hundred acres of virgin bud, man, right through the trees there, dude. He said, are you interested, man? And I said, dude. <laughs> Look around you. <laughs> what the fuck do you think is going on over here, man? I'm loading a boat right now. I said, you know, well, you know, yeah, maybe another time, you, yeah. know, you know, whatever. You know, I'm smoking away and shit like this. And we get done. And he crashes. He goes off into the bushes. And I get back over the boat, you know, and we're the next morning. We're getting ready to leave. And I'm talking to the shore crew. And I talk about the guy that came through the bush. He goes, well, that's his stuff we just put on your boat. <laughs> He's got 200 more acres of it ready to go. Holy I love how he said virgin bud too, which virgin means bud less seeds. Mm-hmm. That's a way of saying like it hasn't been pollinated yet by the male, you know, like less and seeds. Yeah. We literally hauled millions of Jamaican ganja, pounds of Jamaican ganja. Wow. The first, I think the first million of it never came. Well, what few, years, what years ranging years wise, you think Jamaica, when the Jamaica thing started? 80, 81, 82 ish, in 83, and in that range right there. Because there was a guy, 
And you can prob you can find this video on YouTube. Punch up a guy named Brother Love. Mm-hmm. He was the he was running the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church in the Blue Mountains in Jamaica. Oh, these are the these are the, Ross, the ones on Star Island, right? They bought a mansion on Star Island. <laughs> Brother Love, you know that. Yeah, they said it was in their religion to so, smoke weed. Well, that's what they're. Isn't they that came the here. Sunshine Gang. Is that the Orange Sunshine? No. Group? No, okay. I don't think so. But he's right. They came here under the guise of our constitutional right to- I saw that. Religion. Yeah. The and it's, smoke this weed. is part of the religion. You smoke weed. Well, the government's not going to let that fucking happen. Because they're saying for, it's like your bread, it's your wine and bread. It's your sacrament. This exactly. is our sacrament. Exactly. It's the same it, with peyote with certain religions it, it, in New Mexico. It turned out in a lot of ways to be a bit of a comical of errors, you know, because we literally brought maybe a million pounds to that fucking island right through the front door. Almost right past Miami and into the star, into into Biscayne Bay is where Star Island is. There's only a, there's about a half a mile causeway, two lane causeway that goes out to it. There's only like nine mansions on this little island. They got one of them, and the Zion Coptic Church bus was always parked on the mansion's property. So to get the shit from the house and off the island and down that causeway, they put it on the fucking church bus. <laughs> Drive it off the fucking island, but so they were pulling up on boat to that island, huh? They were pulling up loads by Fuck boat. Yeah. Fuck yeah, man! Straight to the island. Right, like, we right, should get a house like all, on the I mean, island. Videos you see them like outside, all smoking weed yeah, and yeah, shit, yeah. and like surf, the kids. Like, robes on almost. Crazy. The kids. That's what they said did it was when they were letting their show were showing the kids smoking weed, and that's yeah. when they that's when they said they like. Well, the biggest part of that time. story, yeah, and you're that, that's that's part of it. Yeah, the biggest part of it was that the complaints they were getting from their neighbor on either side of them, depending on which way the wind was blowing. They couldn't open the fucking windows to the house because they're over there huffing these fucking big cliffs and shit. You and this know? ain't 2020. So, right. yeah, this is when so, you smell weed, you're calling the cops just on the smell. Right. Like, oh, oh. So when they finally focused in and paid attention to this clown and his followers and, you know, and his guys, they show up at the front gates to the mansion with a subpoena. And the cameras and the news and everybody's there and they're watching and shit, you know, and Brother Love strolls out there and he's got two of his buddies behind him and he's just, you know, gnarly looking, you know, and he's got this pouch hanging off from his, from his waist and he strolls out there and he goes, you know, what's happening, brother, brother? And the little fucking weasel guy with the white shirt and the black tie hands him the subpoena through the gate. And he starts to tell him about, you know, the subpoena and shit. He just hand, goes like this and hands it to the guy behind him. Hell yeah. <laughs> he reads it, hands it back to him. Fucking Love's got this subpoena in his hand and he reaches down into this pouch and he grabs a handful of ganja and he throws it in this fucking subpoena and rolls it up like this and starts to smoke the fucking thing. <laughs> right there at the gate, <laughs> right in front of the fucking guy that served, right in front of the guy that served him. <laughs> that's the that's the first going viral yeah. because that's they are. Holy I mean, they shit. bring it. They bring it down. They bring it down to the truth. This was put on the earth for us to partake in. Yeah, you know, he said, "God, you know, whatever religion you believe in, you know." You know, it was it was said at one time, and it just I mean, it's a natural to assume that whatever was put on the earth was put here for us. Well, and yours is wine from grapes. Ours is cannabis from dried flour. It's right. it's like that's the parallel, but people can't accept that. That doesn't involve any refinement of any way. 
Zero. It's just grow it and fucking take it. I mean, how much easier can it Not be? Not even fermentation. And why yeah. in the fuck does every mammal on earth have an endocannabinism system in their body that only reacts when you take THC? We are supposed to and designed by nature to have a symbiotic relationship with this fucking shit. But that's another story for another time. But with regards to the brother love thing, you know, there was um, not too long ago, a, a documentary came out by a guy named Billy Corbin who did Cocaine Cowboys. It was called Square Grouper. It was a trilogy. It was the Zion Coptics, the Ethiopian Zion Coptics, the Rastafarian. Um, it was um, um, Robert Flatchhorn, who was the mastermind, if you will, for the, what they call, was dubbed the Black Tuna Gang. And these guys are a bunch of clowns who set up their headquarters at the Fountain Blue Hotel in downtown Miami and tried to work out the route between Columbia and shit to figure out because at that time, President Carter was making quasi notions about legalizing weed. So they figured we're going to get right in on this shit, you know, so and they were even using High Times magazine at that time. If you're familiar with High Times and they give you the prices of the weed and shit and they were using that to base their price of their shit on you their business model. <laughs> two, two, like two, three guests before you had on, we had one of the guys from High Times, and that was one of the convos we just had was about the pricing of weed and yeah. the evolution over the years. It was all in there, man. Wow. So, you know, and then they had the, the bit about Everglades City. But the thing about Everglades City, and they missed the biggest fucking story of his career, which is the one I'm about, I'm, you know, getting into with you. And the only people he could find to tell them the story were the people that I saw on the screen when I went to Sarasota Film Festival to see it for the first time to find out what the fuck did this guy do? Well, he's talking to people who were bail handlers, you know, he talked to maybe three people out of that interview that had any credibility whatsoever. One of them was the guy, if you remember, you know, any of you remember Square Group or if you remember the guy sitting in the big comfy chair with a ball cap and the white beard and shit like that. Jimmy. Yes. He was, he was from time to time, a partner of mine. We worked together. He had credibility, but what they did was they took what he was saying out of context and made him sound like a fucking idiot. You know, he got to the point where they said, well, everybody's, you know, when the arrests were taking effect, everybody started telling on everybody, but that's all they put in there. He, they left out the part about, why they were doing it and how they were able to do it and not hurt one another. You know, we'll get to that. But the other person was uh, Floyd Brown, the older guy. Floyd was back in the day, even before me and us guys, was the go-to guy where if you were ever anywhere in the Caribbean or in Central America or even in South America and you needed a captain, you had a problem with a boat, Floyd was the guy you flew there to take care of it, right? And um, another one was... Um, um, Shane Daniels, the kid that would, the kid who remarked about, yeah, many a bail parked over this island. He was one of the Daniels brothers. He was one of the Daniels second generation's sons that I grew up with. We all hauled pot together like a motherfucker. Now those three had credibility. The guy that played the guitar in the, in the skin, that fucking kid was 14 years old when this was going on. But these were the only people they could get to talk to him because nobody won't tell him the story. You know, mm -hmm. about, you know, about that. But in my opinion, he missed, a, he missed the story of his, of his career. But, you know, I like his style. You know, I'll give him credit for the way he tells the story and the little animations that he does and shit, you know. But Yeah, and you can only get 
what out of people, what you can access, right? right. So if that's what you can access, that's what, what they're you get. willing to tell you. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these people were, were so young that they really don't have anything to tell you, but what they were told, you know, which is, I mean, there's, where's the credibility in that? But if you don't know, tell, you take it tell as, us you, the real uncut story. You tell it as God. say about the, the big guy. Yeah. Well, and that's why First Smoke brings you guys like this. We get to hear it straight from the Saltwater Cowboy. You know, and um, once I had a look at that, and I looked at that, you know, the trilogy, you know, that thing like that. And, and I had seen, <clears throat> it wasn't too long prior to that, had I seen for the first time the movie Blow. Yeah. With Johnny Depp and the story of George Jung, who wound up being, you know, a, a semi-friend of mine prior to his death several years ago. Yeah. Um, he wound up going back to Mass, where he was from. You know, a little town in Massachusetts. Um, and that's where he ultimately died. But he was, you know, he had a rough transformation. He didn't, you know, he's all those years in prison and he was, he, he uh, blew his probation and his parole one time and spent three more fucking years. He got out in 2014 and then went in and got back out in 2017. But, you know, that's had a lot of vices he couldn't keep under control. Plus he's 78 fucking years old, man. Well, and if you've done something for 40 years and that's all you know, what do you think's going to happen when you get out at 65, 70 with no money? Yeah. You're yeah. all good right now. I wrote I wanna... about that in the book. It's called yeah. institutionalization and, and it's real. Yeah. I, I spent, you know, the what time I spent in prison myself, I experienced that for two years. You know, it's real. Would you say a lot of- you, So you did two years? No, no, no. This is two years after I got out. I was experiencing that. I was experiencing that, that dread, that, that, that fear that, you know, when your life is literally controlled and where they had me, um, it was a controlled movement for the first half of the day. Every four minutes to the hour, a voice would come over the mic and say, it's the move is on, the move is on, you know. The gates would open and you'd had four minutes to get from where you are to where you need to be before they lock everything down. And if you don't get there, you're out of bounds. And they step on the back of your neck and cuff you and take you and put you in jail, inside jail. <laughs> you know, but that controlled movement, you know, happened up until 3.30 when everybody got out of work and back to the unit and locked in to get prepared for four o'clock count because every prison in North America counts their prisoners at four o'clock in the afternoon. And when that count matches up, then they start releasing the units one by one out to chow. And after chow, after dinner time, then it's open compound. You can walk between compounds. You can talk and bullshit, shit like that. The only place that you needed to get counted down to was the education building. And within the, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, if you're wanting an education of any kind, whether it be college, you know, or any kind of a particular study, they were where you would be sent to get that education because they had civilian professors and teachers and things like that would come on campus and, you know, and do that sort of thing. So that's, um, you know, that's part of the story about me being in prison and how I got to, uh, to um, when I first got there, I mean, everybody works when you go to prison, you know, and I was looking at, um, you know, out of that 160 years of life and mandatory and the 16 million and all that bullshit, my almost $1 million attorney out of Baltimore, who was the father-in-law of my local attorney, who said, man, I can't touch this fucker. <laughs> you know, he got my sentence capped at 20 years. 
because, you know, and, and it's, and it's hard to go from telling one part of the story back to another without forgetting where the fuck I left off at. But, um, because it's, it's so intricately, intricately woven in this very particular sequence of events needed to take place in order for my ass to be fucking sitting here, you know, you know, with, a you know, with, with that much time on my ass, but what they wanted was cooperation. And what I mentioned to you earlier about what they, what they took out of contents from my buddy Jimmy was simply the fact that when they started taking these arrests, affecting these arrests, I was one of the first 38 to go that first day of Operation Peacemaker, they called it. Let, let's go back a little bit sure. real quick. Sure. You do the first load, you're doing loads. How long was the run lasting? Like, how long did you live this life? Uh, and then, like, how long did it take you to go from 5,000 to where you're like, you're like making, like you said, million and a half or whatever it was? You it know? took from 1979, 1984 for me to go to, into the millions. Because that's when, in 1984, was the second of the Operation Everglades. Operation Everglades 1 was in 83. Operation Everglades 2 was in 1984 when they took the older generations, the guys that were more visible and the people that were being watched. And they had no fucking idea the kids were doing the shit, you know, or how many people were involved or even to the extent to which it was being involved. You know, um, they those, probably learned a lot of that in the first operation. Well, yeah, realized, I mean, oh, it was a lot bigger. Well, but then again, actually, no, when that like, first, here's the thing. They wouldn't <laughs> say that. Who would no. be saying that? It's yeah, your kids. You're right. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah, no, it didn't. When yeah, it's that were, close, it's it was like, never turned. You know, it was never put off that way in any in any of us. But with regards to what you just um, commented on, was the yeah the first Operation Everglades that took place in 1983. The older generation's intelligence was good enough in such that they knew two weeks before they got there that they were coming. <laughs> so when they showed up, it was nobody there. You know, or barely anybody there. It was a failure. You know, it was it was a fucking joke. And the reason I say that, it was a magnificent failure because it took over 250 federal agents from every branch of law enforcement in the United States across North America to descend on that little town to try to get it done. 250 motherfuckers. And they got there and there was hardly anybody there. Because, Well, that's when they said, fuck it. Okay. So almost a year to the day, 84, here they come again. Well, now they know they're coming again and they know they're not going to give up. So the adults wind up just, you know, at two in the morning, go out on the front porch and smoke a cigarette and wait for the fucking show to start. Cause you know, here we go. That's when they focused in and got the, you know, the Daniels brothers and, and, you know, those people and the guys that were really visible, you know, um, sort of a thing. But, you know, at that time, um, I had somehow managed to, like I said, force gump my way into a position that afforded me the ability to, hey, pick up the ball and let's do this. Let's continue going on. And the, the way that came about was simply when they had done this second operation and put all these other fucking guys, these older guys, 253 people went down between Everglades, Miami, and Kentucky. That's how big that part of it was. The Daniels brothers themselves, five of them, standing in front of the magistrate, and he's reading off the list of seizures. And Everglades in, or uh, Netherlands Antilles Holding Company in the Caribbean worth about $8 million in some properties. They had land and property in North America everywhere. And, and in Florida, they had condos and timeshares. They had boats, planes, cars. I mean, and plus they seized 580,000 pounds of Colombian weed. Now, who in the fuck has a half a million pounds laying around? 
this family right here. We do. (laughs) So the magistrate, he's scratching his fucking head and they're all standing there. And Craig, the youngest of the brothers, Craig Daniels, one of my dearest friends, even till today, um, this is his second time being busted for fucking weed. And the judge looked at it and the magistrate, and he says, Mr. Daniels, he says, I need you to understand that, you know, this is your second time around. Just remember this. Oh, yes, sir, he says. And um, so he, they can hear the papers rustling and shit, you know, and this judge literally takes his glasses off and he scoots up and he says, I have absolutely no idea how to sentence people like you. He says, <laughs> there are no guidelines for people like you. They don't exist. He says, never in my life have I ever come across people like yourself. He didn't know, you know, what, to, what, how much time to give them. Because of that much weed and that's way operation and just the whole logistics well, of yeah, it. Well, yeah, yeah, that and there were no guidelines to go by to dictate, you know, where to go with this amount of shit. So what does he do? The first four brothers, besides Craig, this is their first time. 36 months. <laughs> For a half a million pounds. Jesus, for flooding North America with fucking weed, you know? And then he gets to Craig and he says, let me remind you, this is your second time, Mr. Daniels. And he goes, yes, sir, I, I understand. And um, he says, uh, and he's scratching his head and he feels, hears the paper rustling. And he goes, once again, he says, Mr. Daniels, I have no idea how to sentence a guy like you. He says, but this, and he's asking him, looking him in the eye and he goes, does five years sound like a long time to you? And Craig goes, oh, yes, sir. That sounds like a hell of a long time. He goes, yeah, yeah. five years. Oh, shit. <laughs> and that was it. That was, you know, that was the second generation. That was, th- and those were the brothers that were making all the work happen, mm-hmm. you know? And it just so happens that, you know, Daryl and Cheryl and Craig and Dwayne and, 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 and uh, Craig and, um, uh, were basically the guys, the bosses running all the show, you know, because they learned, Craig, the youngest brother, learned from the legend, Lauren Toch Brown, who was the original fucking pot hauler. He blazed the trail, dude. He figured it out. He was the, he was the man that went to Columbia or to Panama, to Columbia to figure out where to go up the rivers to get the red bud and how to get a hold of it, how to package it. And that was trial and error. It was not an easy thing for this man. He blazed the trail. He got Craig, the younger, youngest brother, involved. And up until that point, it was the, you know, the Cubans in Miami that were in control of this shit. And a lot of the stuff was going to Miami and wasn't coming to Everglades. And Totch was approached and got involved in shit like that. And Craig, uh, um, Totch um, c- recruited the youngest brother, Craig, because everybody's thought process at that time was that you work with these guys, they just didn't fucking kill you, then pay you, you know? Well, Nothing could have been further from the truth, mm-hmm. you know. So Craig jumps in and he's doing his thing. He comes home one night. And he's got a he's got a suitcase full of fucking money. I mean, this fucking thing's heavy. It probably weighs a hundred pounds. And he puts it on the kitchen table and opens it up. And his four brothers look at that and they're like shocked to death. They're dis- they're disgusted. They are up. They're they're up practically shunning him. They don't want anything to do with them because they they don't want any part of this kind of shit. And Craig is like just. Take some and get your kids some bicycles or something, you know. He says, you know, I got, this is nothing, you know. I mean, it's no problem. But it didn't take very long for each of them to come on and, you know, and jump on board not too long after that. And that's how the second generation began. And when they started having kids, those are the people I grew up with. 
that was Shane and, and uh, the kid I was telling you about that was talking on a square group or show. So that brings up, and that's one of my questions is who were the guys that you guys looked up to? Who were the guys that were mythical guys? Like, man, this guy, he's the guy. I don't know that it, it ever occurred to any of okay. us that way. You know, it was just, you know, at that time, maybe in, you know, something like that could possibly be considered in retrospect, but at that time you're, you're not thinking that way. Okay. You know, 40, 50, 60 ton loads was common. That was what we knew as kids. That's all we knew. There was nothing out of the ordinary for that, you know? So they take these fucking guys and they're all doing their time and whatever like that. And in the meantime, I had had the opportunity. And this is uh, something that uh, JK brought up earlier about this fucking Winnebago. Um, we had just done, we're working 28. This is, a, this is uh, when we worked a stretch of 28 nights in a row to the tune of a rough calculation of 1.6 million pounds in, in a month, in less than a month came across that island and went to fucking Miami. We had crews and boats from everywhere. I mean, bringing this shit. We brought in 55 tons one night just to see if we could fucking do it. <laughs> Cause you know, it wasn't about the money at that time. It was about getting the fucking work done, you know? So I was part of that 50 ton job offshore. I made $75,000 that night and we came in the next day and because there was so much shit and they're running during the day, they're sending this sh shit off. And I go over to one of the four houses that's stuffed full of this shit. And um, one of the big dogs, Daryl, this was his job. He sees me. Timmy. He says, Timmy, come here. So I'm like, oh, fuck. In my head, I'm like, oh, fuck. And I walk over there and um, he points to this Winnebago. Now, two days earlier, when we had days off, he gave me a chainsaw and a wrecking bar and my buddy Jimmy and pointed to this very Winnebago that was brand fucking new. I think it had 125 miles on it. He says, I like you too to go in there with those, you know, the chainsaw and wrecking bar and strip every fucking thing you can strip out of that goddamn thing from the windows down. Leave the cabinets and the curtains and all that other shit. But take, I mean, we even took out the seats, the driver's seats, captain's chairs and shit like that. So, I mean, strip that fucking cabinets and everything. Put the bathroom, cut the bathroom like this, you know? And um, they put, airbags in the springs of this thing and inflated it so when they put this 11 and a half thousand pounds of bales in this fucking thing it didn't it wasn't going to spark the fucking highway on the way to miami it just sat staunch and straight just like it was supposed to like it was empty now if you look at this thing you know you're seeing the curtains in the cabinets and it's just a fucking winnebago you walk up there you look like this and this bales straight across to the other window like this you know and um so I'm there that day to see how the 50,000, 55,000, you know, 110,000 fucking pounds is going. And that's when Daryl goes, Timmy. And that's when I went, oh, fuck. And he says, um, I'd like to ask you a favor. And he says, and I'm only asking you because I need somebody I can trust, uh, somebody I can depend on. And I've been doing this for, you know, Billy and, you know, for a number of years now. And I said, okay, cool. And he said, I'd like you to drive this thing to went to Miami for me. <laughs> I said, and that's the last thing in the fucking world I wanted to do, man. I mean, the guys on the road, that's one thing. But what we did, I was comfortable with. I've been doing that for years, you know. But this driving thing, I always thought they were the ones that had the balls. You know, you're out there on that fucking, you're driving this shit. 
So I get, okay, you know, and I said, I only did it because of who he was. Plus he's, you know, I mean, he said he'd give me $35,000 for driving it over there. But the thing was, it couldn't go to the plaza in Kendall where we're doing the dead drops at. You know, they would switch different plazas, of course, because you get within 40 feet of this fucking thing, you can smell it. (laughs) It had to go right to the stash house and no one had ever gone there because of the dead drops. No one was, no one had ever seen this place except the guys who were running the show, the big dogs. Daryl, you know, he knew those guys, you know, it was very, kept very small, you know, because as a kid, when I was getting paid for loads, I didn't care who his boss was, just give me the paper bag, you know? So I'd get in this fucking thing and, and because there was no seat, we had taken out one of the bales and sit down in there between a fucker and drive this goddamn thing. And I start my 120 fucking mile journey across fucking, you know, Everglades with this thing. And um, I wind up, you know, I turned down to get to Four Corners, which is Chrome Avenue, if you guys are familiar with, uh, you know, that end of Miami. And I turned down, um, 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 what the fuck is that? Chrome Avenue. And I'm going down, I go past Kendall and I go off into this, you know, I go almost to Homestead and I turn off to the right and I go into this area of, of Orange Grove and I'm being directed us, you know, which way to turn and shit like this. And I, all of a sudden it opens up and here's this fucking house that has absolutely no business being there. It was, it was built, it looked exactly like a medieval fucking castle. It had the spires and the fucking shit. I mean, the, the, the Cuban, whoever million dollar baby built this fucker obviously had no fucking taste, but I drove in there. I parked the fucking thing. I got out and they started, you know, the guys immediately started, you know, throwing it under the house and shit. And I went inside and I was told to go ahead and stay there that day and wait till the job was done being you know brought over that day. And, and they had a car with money. They wanted me to drive back. That's why he needed somebody he could trust. This was, I didn't know this at that time, but this was the trust part. And, um, so I'm there all day long and I'm bullshit and I'm meeting these guys, we're playing poker and they're drinking, they're doing Coke, but I'm, you know, I got to drive back, you know, and shit like this. So I meet these guys and a guy named George and shit like that, you know, and nobody had ever met them. None of our crew, nobody had ever seen these guys. So I drive the car back, you know, I get my pay and shit like that and life goes on. Well, here comes the operation that I spoke of, Operation Operation Everglades uh, 2, off goes Daryl and the brothers and the pot Holland's done. I mean, there's nobody to can make the connection to make this mechanism work. Well, it took them almost a month to find a guy named Timmy in my face. And there's, you know, it's not a very big area. It took them a month and they find me and I get up on my front door one day and open up and there's this fucking cue. There's this George Jorge, this guy I met at the house. And he goes, Timmy, he says, um, you know, work's backing up, man. He says, we got shit to do. Can you do this? And I said, fuck yeah. You know, I didn't give it a second thought. You know, I yeah, fuck yeah. So I went back down to Everglades and I started talking to Jimmy, the guy that I told you about and, and the crews and the guys that I used to work with. And, and uh, because the infrastructure was still there, it was the adults, the finger pointers that they took away. We were the ones running the boats. We were offshore. We were running, filling the houses and driving and loading. And, you know, if, if, you know, we had too much shit on the island, we had to take and empty this house, run it through a, ha- a place we called Halfway Creek, a little tunnel we built through the mangroves, a waterway that was covered 
that we could drive this shit back off into it and put it into a truck off a turn of the river to empty that house because we need that house, you know, just shit like that. Well, I went back and got them all together. But what I didn't know, I knew all about the driving and how to do it and this and that. But what I didn't know was where the fuck do you get the shit? How much do you charge? Who the fuck do I talk to? I mean, come on, man. You know, so I wound up making connections and communicating with several of the older generations because, you know, they were by now some of them were getting out, you know, and there were there were a lot of those old timers, those, those guys, you know, but particularly the guys from Everglades and would impart to me this knowledge, you know, where to go, who to talk to, this and that, whatever, and steer me in the right direction. And, and what to charge was the big thing because I tried to um, um, reverse engineer the process because I've worked all these positions and I know what they pay. So I got to figure, okay, a job this size might take this many guys and I got to do the math. And I, I was close to the $175 a pound thing. I was close to it. But there was two ways to do it. You could pay me $175 a pound and I will get it all. I'll go wherever you want, get whatever you want, get however much you want. And I'll put it on your doorstep in Miami for $175 a pound. That pays me and my crew the work. And then you get your shit. You want to go send your boat to wherever and your crew to go get it. Well, that's cool. Now I'll bring it in for you. I'll meet your boat and bring it in for you for $145 a pound. So there's two different ways. But they always option for me just to, you know, do the whole fucking thing. I didn't want to fuck with it. But also built into that safety valve was the was the fact that whenever I sent a boat south to wherever or to wherever country it's going, whoever shit, whoever's buying that shit, I don't know who they are. I only know Carlito and Leo, my two Cuban guys. You work through them. I'll work through you. I don't want to fucking know these people. But the thing of it was, was that if it was whoever shit it was, they put a guy on that boat of ours. He goes with it to South America, Jamaica, Central America, Venezuela, wherever the fuck we're going. And I have a guy that's paid to go with him and stand with him. And all their job is to do is count the bales when they come on board and make sure the counts match. That way the buyer knows the count. My guys know the count. Plus, the biggest plus is that if anything happens to that load throughout the voyage and it disappears or gets taken, their guy's going with it. He's going to be able to tell them exactly what the fuck. We didn't jack your shit. You know, what the fuck do we want your shit for? First of all, but that guy was always there for just for that in case sort of a, you know, a moment. Yeah, that firsthand account. This is what happened. Right. And it's a trust issue. You know, which I totally understand. I totally get, you know, because sometimes the counts come up differently, you know, because, you know, fuck, you're out there on the, you know, on the water and, and the shit, you know, the boats are rolling and shit, you know, you know, the shit's, some of it's tumbling off into the water, hence square grouper, you know, that's how that come about. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. wild. People don't know about that side of things where, you know, th there'd be literally bales floating in the waterways and yeah. people coming up on them and oh, fuck yeah. crazy. You know, but, and that's just a testament to the fact that there were other pot haulers out there other than us. Mm -hmm. We never threw a load, any of us. Wow. We always, I mean, mm -hmm. we had this really, like I said, sophistication in our system that didn't allow for that opportunity for that to happen. We had a way to go. But there are guys out there that would get spooked. And throw the fucking shit and really nothing there. Nothing's happened. They're just spooked because they saw, maybe they saw something. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you this, in one case, 
as that, such as that, we're headed off to go pull stone crab traps one morning. And um, Captain Billy's dad is on the boat, the owner of the boat. He's running, he's captain, you know, we're going to go pull traps. Well, it's just breaking dawn. And all I can hear is him kicking the bunk with his boot. There's bales out there, boys. <laughs> Dude, we sat up, put our fishing boots on, and we ran out onto the deck. I and thought we're I was finally about to hear a crab store. don't pay like that. We get out on the deck, and we're looking around. The sun's coming up, and it's like the water's like glass. Oh, nice. And as far as you can fucking see, these bales are floating everywhere. No way. <laughs> yeah, Holy dude. Shit. And, and it didn't happen very long prior to that because some of them were floating pretty high in the water, you know, and depending on the pack, how well they've done the packaging, depending on how much saltwater intrusion they'll get. But we're plowing, the boat's plowing through them like this. And the captain, Hubert, he slows the boat down and we grab our, you know, hooks for the buoys and shit and we start combing around for the ones floating high out of the water because <laughs> we can. At our waterlogged, yeah. We start throwing them on deck. We're just, I mean, we're not even counting them, you know. We're just throwing this shit on deck. And we, I don't think we get to like, I don't know, there must have been 120 of these fuckers on there. And Hubert comes flying out of the wheelhouse. He goes, no, 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 no. And he says, throw some of that shit the fuck back in there, he says. And we didn't understand later that the boat that was coming out there, we couldn't take any more than that boat could take. You yeah, know? you're already working on a load. So you're yeah. like, we're, we're filling space for another load that's yeah. fresh versus this is water. We got a hundred of these things and they're worth about 25 grand a piece. You know, we're, we're cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they come and Billy comes out and he comes with the boat. He takes the shit and off he goes and stashes it in the fucking woods. We continue on to the trap line and start work like a normal day. So throughout that entire morning, we got these boats, little boats, coming up to us going, where's the shit at? (laughs) Because somebody on the radio is yelling square grouper. And when, and if you're in town and you got a radio and any kind of boat and you hear square grouper, you're in the fucking boat and gone, man. You know, and then we're like, it's that way about four miles, but you better hurry up because, you know, it's been there a while, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's just. You know, and we wound up, you know, our cut was splitting it four ways between Billy and the captain, Mark and me. I think we each made out about nearly 600 grand a piece. Wow. Found money on the way to work. On a day. <laughs> People One don't day. get it, man. In a, in a couple hours, what, man. What year, well, yeah. what year was it? This is 1983. This is what <laughs> I was, I was, I was fucking born. That's my year. Biggs was just coming out, man. But I was that's a baby the, being born they, out of a I don't think people kilo. understand $600,000 in that day is pretty much like $6 million today. Yeah, yeah. Like. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a lot of money. You know, and people always ask me. Like, it had to feel like that, like. That's a fuck ton of money. Like, what would you do with your cash? We like, already had you, a fuck ton of money. This was just added to the fuck ton we already saying. had. That's what I'm saying. So what, work. What, what were ways where you were like kind of storing your cash? And I had a condominium on, on the way to Marco Island. And I had so much money stuffed in the air conditioning vents that the fucking air wasn't coming out anymore. So I wound up having to buy a house. So I bought it from a Cuban friend that I was working with and I paid cash for it. So now I've got this house and now I'm putting money in the attic. I'm stacking boxes. I'm stacking shit here. And I'm, you know, it's up there for a week or so or whatever. And I'm working, I'm doing my shit and like this, you know, and I come back home one day and I open up the attic and I turn the light on and I go up there to put a bag. I don't know. I think I got about, you know, $300,000 in cash, you know, you know, twenties and tens and shit like that. And I, I, I look up there and I see this pile of chewed up fucking money, $100 bills. 
about $250,000 worth of $200 bills and then chewed up by mice. And they made the coolest little condominium out of this fucking pile of money, man. Oh and they chewed it. I mean, it wasn't where you could like tape it back together. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they made confetti out of this fucking thing. They were working hard, you know, busy little fuckers, right? And I just, I, I, all I could do was laugh. You know, I'm like, look at this fucking thing. And I scooped like this and I threw it back with the rest of the insulation in the attic and set my bag down and shut the door and went on about my business. But the money, you know, is a pain in the ass. And anybody that has made any significant amount of money will tell you it's a pain in the fucking ass. That's why, you know, I think a lot of us, I mean, had the, uh, you know, you know, when you think back about it, we don't want to sell it. We don't need to make any more fucking money. That we're making us, you know, almost too much now as it is. And you come up with different ways of trying to get rid of it. And when you start talking about stashing it and shit like that, and people are like, you bury your money? Well, fuck no. Pirates bury their treasure. You know, we learned years ago that you don't bury money because it fucking mildews and molds and fuck. I don't give a fuck what you put it in, PVC, do whatever the fuck you want. I can remember times of being paid with $5 bills and nobody ever wanted fives, man. I mean, we had a money house in Miami that had, and when any one time had at least a couple hundred million in it. There were hundreds in master bedroom, hundreds in the master, or fifties in the master guest, twenties in this guest room, tens in this one, and the fives were in an eight car garage out back. Because if you've ever seen a stack of a million dollars in fives, take up this little square right here where we're sitting. So when I get paid or anybody gets paid, you have to take some of each denomination, shit like that. But the fives are generally when you're paying somebody, you know, off the side out of your money, you know, the bundle doesn't come apart. You just hand them the bundle, <laughs> you know, or tens even are like that. Sometimes, you know, you're paying somebody off or like give them the bundle and it doesn't get open. Well, what happens is that money begins to mildew. And I can't tell you how many times as a kid I've been paid with bags of money that you go like this and the mildew dust comes flying out of it and you can just, you can smell it. I mean, it go, it'll go bad on you in a hurry. So you don't bury the shit. That's a myth. Plus a lot of the guys will forget where they put the shit, you know, for one thing, you know, <laughs> I got a couple of sunny stories, but I don't want to go off into that. But um, what we did figure out after a while, and we were getting very good at figuring out how to spend money and not having anything to show for it. That was going to South Beach and spending all that cash. You know, when you take a tab, there's nothing to show. I mean, you're not declaring any of that. You're buying drinks and nobody's going to, you think that manager is going to say anything? Fuck no, he can't wait for us to come back, you know, or. I go into town and because Everglades is so far distant, it's 30 miles or so from Naples, which is, you know, a significant town with a decent grocery stores and things like that, where a lot of us would go in with coolers and do a, a good grocery shopping and things like that. Because there was a local um, store, but it didn't have the, you know, with the major chains app kind of thing. So I go in to go grocery shopping one day and I pass the Chevrolet dealer and I see this really, I have my court, my, um, um, my Cobra, my Mustang Cobra, my 76 Cobra. I love that fucking car. And I drive past the Chevrolet dealer and this Corvette sitting out front catches my eye. So I, beep, I turned in there and, and it was beautiful, man. I mean, it had fat tires and mag rims and it was the ground effects and the flared, you know, rims and, uh, wheel wells and shit. And I, you know, I went in there and I asked him about it and said, it was this, um, Bob Taylor's son's car, the owner of the dealership's car that he was turning in for a new car. It's for sale. Not anymore. 
<laughs> so I bought that fucking thing. So while I'm on the phone calling Everglades to my buddies to get two of them to come up and, you know, drive my, you know, my Cobra back, because I'm not getting rid of that fucking thing. I'm looking out the window and I see a row of Jeeps, ragtop Jeeps for $87.95 a piece under 10 grand. If you spend money 10 grand or more, you're required to fill out what's called a CTR, a cash transaction receipt. You need to declare that money. But there's, there, I knew so many people in that, you know, the, the Nissan dealerships and the freelance and that, you know, the brothers and the family owned them. They knew me. They didn't give a fuck. I could go in and get a truck and pay for it in about like three days under 10 grand at a time. So, you know, being able to do that sort of thing, you know, I called my buddies and I, you know, while I was on the phone, I said, Hey dude, get Jimmy, Teddy, Willie and Johnny and shit like that. They got Jeeps up here, man, for under $10,000. We got brand new Jeeps. Let's come out, come on up, man. Let's go have some fun. So an hour later, and pulls seven of my buddies, and we eight, we buy eight jeeps, <laughs> eight jeeps in cash from from the each person, each yeah, one yeah, of us yeah, bought yeah. one, and we went out to Bad Luck Prairie, out in the out in just North Everglades, you know, south of a place called Golden Gate, you know, Golden Gate City, and we had one of the most badass demolition derbies you've ever <laughs> seen in your life, man. Holy we were shit. wrecking these, we were crashing these fucking things, and we were just having a blast. And my girlfriend at the time, you know, it, you know, blonde bartender, you know, really, you know, typical blonde, she sees the roll bar in the jeeps, you know, and she's thinking, well, the roll bar, you can roll it, right? So she's screaming, roll it, roll it, roll it. You know, and I'm, you know, for like a half hour, I'm getting tired of hearing this bitch screaming. All of a sudden, I just crank the fucking wheel. And I think we rolled it maybe three times. Holy <laughs> and shit. she's screaming. You know, she's, she's, you know, we're buckled in nice, you know. And she's screaming. Oh, and she's crying, Why did you do that? And I said, because you told me to fucking roll the goddamn thing. <laughs> so we did this. I don't know how ever many hours this went on, but until we had one still in decent enough shape to get us back into the dealership and we pulled it in and parked it, got in our cars and left it and went home. <laughs> you know, and that's just, you know, you know, it was negligible money spending, but you know, it was a way to have fun and, you know, just spend, spend a little cash, you know, but um, was it a big thing having big engines on the boats to run when you're doing runs and stuff like that on like the ghetto? Like a lot of guys spend like buy nice <sighs> boats and have big engines. Was it that kind of a thing or no? No, no. Okay. No. Those type of things draw too much attention. The type of boats that we use were, um, there were a couple of brothers in Naples called, the, they were the Morgan brothers who built boats and they built a lot of custom boats designed by us you know, to do a particular job that we needed to do with shallow water. And they were really very good at it. Plus they had at that time a boat called a T-Craft, which was a very wide, flatter bottom boat that you could hang two twin 235 Evinrudes on. And there's your power right there. But they also had vertical and horizontal trim. You could either pull it up or you could swing it in and out. But if you pull that prop up, those two props up, just to the bottom of the boat. And if those props will go through the water, the boat will go through the water. So they're very beautiful for working backwaters. And those are the ones that would come out to get the loads of wheat to take through the islands because they could hold 40 bales, 45 bales, and they make less trips. Plus, 
the earlier generations, you know, when they were using the mullet boats and things like that, different types of engines and shit like that, you know, if something went wrong, they get a mechanic and he'd come out and wrenching on your shit, you know, and working like that. Well, when it was time for us to do our thing, we didn't work it that way. That was just, that was too much of an inconvenience, a, 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 um, a problem waiting to happen if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it. So everyone was using the Evernote 235 engines because they were the most reliable and most dependable and most powerful at that time. Well, all of us had them. And now these boats that I described to you in Southwest Florida, there could have been 200 of them that are stashed in people's garages or out in the woods and packed back in and stuff. They're not just parked in your fucking driveway Mm -hmm. and shit like that, you know, because law enforcement, they're not stupid, okay? I mean, they are to a degree, but when you make things obvious, now it's not them. It's you're the stupid one, you know? But what we wound up doing because of the, the, the uh, um, advent and, and of working all 235 Evinrudes, we had the advantage between, I mean, five different crews and people knowing people that all the backwater guides and, and you know, fishing guides between um, Goodland Island and Pine Island that we all knew our mechanic guy, who was our mechanic, would take and hang a, a brand new engine, 235 Evinrude engine on his boat. He would call Sammy back when it got so many hours on it after it had broken in. Sammy would come back, take that engine already broken in, hang a new motor on it. These guys are getting brand new motors. But what they're doing is for us is you can't just call Sammy. My, my engine's fucked up. And the reasoning was that I said, if that fucking engine left you sitting, you don't mm-hmm. give it a chance to fucking let you sit again. Get fucking rid of it. Mm-hmm. So you can't just take an engine out of a crate and put it on there. You blow the fucker up. You gotta, it has to get broken in. That's what the fishing guys were doing for us, breaking in these engines. And Sammy would recreate them put a new engine on it, put the crate in the warehouse. And when somebody called, Switch already got a broken in fucking motor, man. There was, he didn't show up with wrenches in a truck and shit and started greasing and wrenching and shit. Fuck no. He had a couple of guys that swap out the fucking motor. It was, a, I mean, only because we could, you know? And that's just a, I mean, that's just one little part of, you know, how we worked, you know, I mean, the, and the, the sophistication of when the kids, you know, when us kids were old enough to, to, to start taking this, you know, on, um, my park ranger buddy that I alluded to earlier, he turned me on to this little Cuban dude over in Miami who was a counter surveillance technology expert. He was actually one of the guys that was selling the government and those in the uh, law enforcement, their surveillance technology. So, because our war chest was a hell of a lot deeper than theirs was, I was buying just as good, if not better, counter surveillance technology for us as well to use back against them. And it was some cool shit, man. I mean, there was handheld radar. There were um, um, Polaris scanners that you didn't even have to talk on. You just key your mic like that. And there was a diode, an LED that would go 360 degrees, blinking circumferentially. You and it would stop and point on the compass the direction that that key of that mic came from. So you didn't have to talk. You could tell where these fuckers were at just by not just by them doing that. That's how we communicated sometimes at night coming back in. I had a um, um, parabolic microphones 
And I think you've seen these on, when you watch an NFL game, the guy on the sidelines got that dish with the microphone and he's pointing like this. He's got the mic headphones on. He can hear every word they're saying in the huddle on the field. He can hear everybody just as loud and clear as day. We've got three of these things. When the guys are sitting on shore waiting for load boats to come in, they got these things aimed up and down the fucking shoreline. And if there's a ranger two miles or three miles up the way and he farts, they can hear him. (laughs) Plus, I had what was called an RF detector. This was the coolest little thing, a radio frequency detector. It looked like a pack of, it was about the size of a pack of playing cards. And all it had was a switch and a little light on top of it. And the antenna was either telescopic or I could unscrew that and put a wire on it. So when I leave the house and go to the club, I would put the wire on it, put it in my pocket, run the wire down my pant leg. So if I'm walking around a club and this thing starts to vibrate, somebody's got a radio frequency transmitter on them. They're wired. So all I have to do is walk around the club and the more vibration it gets, the closer I get to them. I can, I can find who in the club is the one with the, <laughs> with the radio attached to them. You know, it's the coolest shit. And then when I go to the club and go home, I could take the wire off and put the, the telescopic antenna back on it and sweep my house when I get home any radio frequency, you know, transponders and shit. This amazing fun shit, man. <laughs> when you know your shit and you, you, you put your 10,000 hours in, that's what that sounds like. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, right? you know, it like the back of your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And back, you know, to the money thing too. We, you know, we figured out how, you know, we had, um, Maybe once a month or so, um, one of the couple of the girls on the island, my buddy's girlfriend and, and um, um, my buddy's sister, Nancy, they would um, make trips to Miami to this little Cuban gold dealer that, they, that we knew over there. And we could buy ingots, gold ingots, or at that time, they were the uh, South African Krugerrands, gold coins. Um, we'd buy gold coins and gold, gold, ounce, and gold bars five ounce bars or whatever like that and they would take over bags of money with our names on it with however much money was in it written on the side of it two hundred thousand three hundred thousand you know whatever like that and they would go in and exchange all that money and that cash for gold now you can do whatever you want with the shit bury it hide Fuck it yeah, yeah man yeah. i had mine in a fucking couple of giant fucking uh lock boxes with a chain on it thrown off the dock next to the boat and if ever i needed you know more cash i just dive in, going to open it up, take a handful of fucking coins and bars out, go to the bank and get some money, you know, with wow. that you could do, but it's a real pirate shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the Solar Cowboy, baby. For no. real. And, uh, that's a real pirate shit right there. Yeah. Man. And, you, um, you literally took your treasure and buried it. Yeah. yeah. Not to do that. In the water though. You yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. But the, the gold, thing. you could the do gold, that too. You know, don't do it with cash. No, all. fuck no. Cash. But like I said, cash, cash will rock. Yeah. This is why when you get better, you're right about that. No, people are lazy. No yeah. one's going down. There. No, oh, fuck. No, no, they don't even know. I mean, it's our private dock. It's yeah. private property. You know, I mean, we know this is on the island, dude. You're not going, you're not getting near that boat. Yeah. You know, that's for sure. People, that's why people are so protective about their docks. You go fishing by someone's dock. <laughs> they walk out. They're like, what are you doing? That is what's going people on. People don't play yeah. with that in Florida. You start fishing by someone's dock, they'll come. And they, even if they don't fish there, like, what are you, what are you doing? 
Yeah. People don't fuck with that. Walk out there and push you off the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we're, you know, we covered the start and we're in like the heyday phase, you know, sure. where things yeah. are going good. How long was the run and like what, you know, did you could take any crazy vacations or were you just like working like seven days a week or was it, how was it like? No, the vacations came to be a part of spending the money, you know, go off on, go off on vacation and take, you know, 70, $80,000 with you and just try to piss it away on just useless shit. You know, take my girlfriend to a shopping trip in Atlanta and, you know, and spend 40, 50,000 bucks on fur coats. And we bought, we bought skis and boots and all nine shit, you know, and, and, and did a trip to uh, North of Montreal to the Laurentian mountains to a bed and breakfast. I never been to one of these fucking things. You know, there's no TV in the room. What the fuck? You know, you got to go down and spend it with the people downstairs, you know, and this is Canada. So here's my dumbass blonde girlfriend comes into the room when everybody's knocking around. They've got drinks and we're talking. Dinner's about to happen. There's a hockey game on. She walks into the room and walks over the TV and goes, what the fuck is this? And she turns at the Wheel of Fortune. The room went nuts because <laughs> you don't fuck with Canadian hockey, man. You know, shit like that. But um, yeah, and I'm, I'm in Miami one day, counting money, of course. And by this time we had figured that, you know, the machines weren't working, man. They're not keeping up because I'm counting money for three days at a time or so. And I should be Colombian or I should be working with my guys. You know, I should be in Jamaica, wherever the fuck. And we just kind of accidentally stumbled on how to weigh it, you know, because everybody in those days had a triple beam, you know, because everybody's weighing Coke and shit like that. And you throw the bill on the triple beam. It weighs a gram. Every denomination, regardless, weighs one fucking gram. So there's 28 of those in an ounce. There's 16 of those in a pound. It's just math beyond that point, you know. But what we had to do was, for the first go-round, the guys would go into the master bedroom with launder baskets and fill them full of hundreds, wads of $100 bills that had rubber bands wrapped on them. Bring them out to the kitchen. And for the first go around to get the proper weight, I would have to count how many rubber bands I, or how many bundles of money I threw into this thing to get to a certain, when I counted a million dollars, to get to that amount. The reason I'm counting is because I have to subtract the weight of the rubber bands now. They're a gram a piece, and there's typically two on a bundle. So I subtract those grams from the overall weight, set the machine, and now I know that 140 pounds of 20s is a million dollars. 22.2 pounds of hundreds is a million dollars. So now instead of counting money for three days, I'm out of there in an afternoon, man. <laughs> you know, but it took longer to get the money home than it did to get the pot to Miami because the fucking money's heavy, man. Like I said, I just told you it weighs. I mean, it adds up. And when you're watching these fucked up movies about guys that are running with bags of money and they're swinging them around and they're jumping over fences, my fucking ass. That shit's heavy, dude. You're not, <laughs> you're dragging that bitch behind you after 50 feet, you know? I had literally pulled, I had $670,000 of mixed denominations in a Samsonite suitcase and I'm ready to walk out of the house with it. And I went to pick it up and the fucking handle came off of the fucking thing. I mean, so it's heavy. Plus now my paydays are... 20 million, you know, they're starting to stack up because, you know, how it works simply is that if I bring your load in, you owe me $20 million for having done that. I'll send all that shit to Miami to you. 
I'll keep $20 million of it in Everglades or Naples somewhere in Golden Gate. You pay me $10 million, I give you $10 million of your shit back. You pay all of it to me, I'll give you all your shit back. Reason for that is you lose your shit over there in Miami, we're getting paid because I can make one phone call and that shit's gone. We didn't risk our fucking asses to not get paid. You know, so that's how every deal went. But you don't get paid immediately. And this is another common misconception. I don't give you your load. You give me my money. I get paid out of the sale of that product. When they've sold enough money to pay me, that's when they call me, Timmy. Okay, that's that. That's why it could be two, three weeks between jobs that I get paid. And as a kid, I can remember getting paper bags shoved over at me at the table for jobs I don't remember having done. (laughs) And that's just how it worked, you know? And that's why we never wanted to fuck with the cocaine guys, because I'm not keeping your fucking coke. Are you kidding me? Take it all, you know, pay me or don't pay me. That's how it would have been, you know, but that was part of how that, you know, how the you know, the sophistication of the scenario went, you know, to guarantee that we got paid, you know, and these guys were, um, were good guys to work with, you know, and little did I know after a while that they were, you know, researching and going back after my own story and figuring out and, you know, Carlito and Leo and finding out Leo Martinez was his name, was his full name. And we had an agreement between ourselves that, you know, if anything was ever done or anything happened with cocaine, you guys would take on the cocaine. If it happened with the weed and shit like that, me and my guys will take that on. Well, Leo winds up getting indicted and and going to prison for 50 tons of fucking cocaine. You know, so, but as it turns out, he was one of two, he and Leo, or Carlito and Leo were soldiers of that Griselda Blanco. (laughs) I didn't fucking know this. This is how I wound up working for, at that time, the president of Panama. Noriega, because he found out through this in Miami about how all this fucking shit's coming into Southwest Florida and everybody's making piles of shit fucking money, you know, and not just Coke, but, you know, it was coming in as easily as the Coke was coming in. Mountains of fucking weed, you know, because, you know, compare one to the other, you got a pile this big versus a pile this big worth more money, you know, but. It's lucrative and we're being it, we're able to do it and we're successful at it. So I wound up somehow and I didn't know it at first. 60,000 pounds they wanted. They come to me, Carlyton Leo, one day. And at that time, we were getting to the point where you don't ever go to a, approach a boat twice. You go out, you unload the fucker one time, you get away from that motherfucker and no, never go back. There was a time when you could do that. After a while, there was a time where, no, 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 you're just asking for your shit if you go to a boat twice. So I told them, okay, 60,000 pounds, I'll do two nights. But show me what the boat looks like. I can show you how to get it loaded so you know you can work with us and our method and get it off the boat and into shore. So what I wound up doing was having a look at the way the boat was designed and up front, in front of the folks hole, it's called, a compartment in the very front bow of the boat, was a, a maintenance hatch in the, into the bilge. And to get to that, it went through a maintenance closet inside the ship, you know, up on the upper deck. Then you go through this door, which is made watertight, because there's two watertight doors between any way you can get water intrusion. This maintenance closet wasn't any bigger than maybe a quarter size of where we're sitting. And you open that big door, you turn the crank, and you pull that door open like you do on a submarine, and you step over the threshold. 
because it's not close to the floor. And that threshold's about 14 inches tall. So you go into this maintenance closet, and then on the floor is a floor hatch that you opened up like this. And when it was closed, it was only four inches above the deck. And I said, look, put 30,000 pounds of the load down in that fucking hole in that ship's compartment, that hole out in front of the boat. Close the hatch. Because it was such a small boat, I said, put five inches of concrete in there and cover that hatch up. Throw all your mops and brooms and rags and shit all the fuck back in there and shut the door. And put the 30,000 I'm going to get the first night in the main ship's hold just under the weather deck. I'll come out, bang, bang, slap, done, done. We'll get that. And you'll have time to, you know, clean up, do whatever you need to do. But as I'm going back with the first 30,000, this guy gets on the radio, the captain in his broken English. He's like, you know, we just got, you know, we could make out a plane just flew over them. They thought it was some kind of a military plane. And I'm thinking Marine Patrol, you know. And the next day, as we're sending that first 30,000 out to Miami, getting prepared to go out that next night to get that, because, you know, they could jackhammer that hole open, you know, when we give them the call and start bringing it up and getting it ready to go, you know. But before they could get that first hole clean, they were spotted and boarded by the United States Coast Guard and they got busted because of the residue. It was still, they didn't have time to clean up. Well, they take the captain and they take the five crewmen and they take the boat into Tampa Bay and they impound it. And it's used as, kept as evidence. These guys are indicted. They go through their shit, but the boat was of Panamanian registry. And according to maritime law, those boats that are, that are not of our registry, um, have to be returned to their native home of registration because the same scenario worked for them. The guy was getting ready to get boarded and he called back over a single sideband radio, which is a radio that I had at home that I can talk to my boat in Columbia like he was sitting next door. This is how powerful these radios were. He calls back to Columbia or um, Panama and says, you know, game's up or whatever. And they call the maritime authorities within Panama and say that we just know we have got a ship hijacked at sea. We don't know where it is like that. You know, it's missing. So now it's considered stolen by these fucking guys. And being of Panamanian registry, they have to, at some point, once the evidence has been used, deport the boat back to Panama. Well, because of all the other shit was still down there, they couldn't put dogs in there. They couldn't sniff around or any shit like that. So come time, they deport the boat back to Panama. Noriega put a crew on it and sent it back to me. <laughs> They chopped that fucking hole open like that. And I took the second 30,000 pounds out of it four months later after they took it. It was still in there. (laughs) So they busted that crew off residue. That's amazing. And then still, it's more risky to handle money than it is a product. Or what do you think? Uh, It's just as scary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because, I mean, you're still going to do time over it, you know, unless you can declare however much money you got in your car at any one time. But see, that was the thing of it. It was so, you know, it was so bulky and the simple fact that I couldn't take just all one denomination, you know, it wouldn't have been fair to any, you know, to a lot of guys, you know, that would wind up having to load up all the fives out of the garage, you know, you had to take just so many of each denomination, which was okay by me. But like I said, when you're talking 15 million, 20 million, or I have two jobs that I need to go get, Pick money picked up for it could take me two three days to get that fucking money back home making trips because that shit's fucking heavy it takes up space and i'm not bringing all at one time you never put all your eggs in one fucking basket you know that just don't happen 
you ever have a load that you were like, uh, after this, I'm done. No. <laughs> no, you know what? I've been asked that. I've been asking questions similar to that all the time. You know, you made all that money. Why didn't you just quit? I'm like, well, because there was no end. Didn't see any end yeah. to it, man. Yeah. You know, I didn't see any reason to, because, you know, um, as a matter of course, what was happening was, you know, the, the type of sentencing that were given down to the older generations obviously wasn't having the desired effect that they wanted. So unbeknownst to us guys, us younger generation, in September 1st of 1987, the federal government changed their sentencing guidelines across the board to mandatory minimum sentences. So now what they have done is taken the discretionary measures that the judges and magistrates used to have and tied their hands behind their back. So it becomes a slide rule type of an affair. And it's mandatory. So that's why my 10 years mandatory to life, she could have given me no less than 10 and up to life. That's how that works. You know, so when you've got four of those on, a, on an indictment, you've got, a, you've got 40 years you got to do. Minimum. Minimum. Yeah. That's the mandatory. And at those times, what they did was they did away with parole also. No more federal parole. What you have is, and no more good time or no significant good time. Because when I went in, I was sentenced on a crime that happened prior to the institution of the new law, which sentenced me under the old law, but the bitch still found a statute to sentence me under that didn't provide for parole because she, she didn't like me much, the magistrate, and I can tell you why. But, um, you know, those, those sentences, you know, that, that we, were, we were looking at and had to deal with, you know, with regards to, you know, to life, just, you know, it didn't seem, you know, after a while, what was what we found out that what was happening is that, you know, and I started to say this earlier, as they were giving out these sentences to people, you know, and guys that have been caught are going back to the other groups of guys and going, dude, they're talking your name, man, you're fucking, they're coming for you. Here's what I suggest. They've given us the opportunity to cooperate, to take this deal. But within those, this deal of cooperation, they also gave you me immunity from prosecution, from everything that I've ever done, except for one count. They want to hold back and reserve as kind of a, at the end, you know, they can give you whatever they want at that point. But because I have an immunity clause already agreed to by the United States um, prosecutor, cooperate. Give them Jimmy and Teddy and Willie's name. They've already got that deal. They've got immunity. You can't hurt them. <laughs> so that's what happened. Every, and that's when Jimmy said, that's when everybody started telling on one another because they're not hurting one another because you can't. They've got immunity, you know, and you took the deal too. So now you've got immunity. So that was the government's way of by design rather than accident of not having to put kids away for the rest of their fucking lives when a year ago, the uncles and dads and fathers were only doing 12, 14 fucking months. You know, and they the, literally grew up in it. So it's like it's family it's business, deep mental, you know, it's like you, the family trades, the family trade to the beginning of time. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's the evolution of life, right. you it's know? In, so it's like, if you're a kid and you grow up in it, it's very normal. Well, like I said, all you know, I knew, all we knew as kids were Boat fucking loads of fucking weed, man. I mean, that's that's Crazy. just how, that's just how it was, you know. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't all fuck, man. Shit like that. It was. Wow. I mean, you get out there and you work and you fucking work and you puke and you work some more, you know. 
And like I said, stone crabbing doesn't make a man out of you. That fucking shit will in a hurry. You know, but, um, you know, there were so many, you know, different scenarios by which this stuff came to us. And one in particular that I need to be mentioned is the prologue of the book, How We Got Dubbed Saltwater Cowboys. Um, this happened probably three years into my pot hauling days where I thought by that time I had seen it come in so many different fucking ways, man, <laughs> packaged and, and boats and, you know, whatever. So what had happened was they, the guys in charge of the, you know, the, the load had um, hired on this boat out of New Orleans who was, who had a four-man crew and the captain had a four-man crew and their job, his job was um, going to South America, purchasing cattle transporting them back into New Orleans and selling them wholesale on the market, on, on, you know, on market. That was his job back and forth. Well, they approached this guy and said, Hey, while you're doing one of these runs, how, how about, you know, how'd you like to make a million dollars? Who the fuck would make a million dollars? So, and you're going to Columbia anyways, you know, so we put 47,000 pounds of shit below deck and he got 170 head of cattle on the weather deck of this giant boat that are corralled in on the deck. They're out on the weather deck, you know? <laughs> so we're approaching, you know, this job just like any other. Call sign, here we go. We get about a half, a, we got about a mile from the fucking boat. And my, my Captain Billy bumps me like this with his elbow and he hands me a pair of binoculars. He goes, Timmy, have a look at this. He says, you're not going to believe what you're about to fucking see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the boat's moving along and I get the binoculars and I'm looking, we're getting a little bit close. And all of a sudden I see the fan gates on the back of the boat open up like this. And all four of those crew members have cattle prods. And, and these fuckers are jumping and falling off the back of the boat. These cows, <laughs> they're falling into the fucking water, like a bovine waterfall. I mean, it's just, and we're all like, what in the, I'm like, what in the fuck? You know, like this. And by the time we get up to the boat, you know, to get alongside of it, we're clunking into these fucking things of hooves and horns and shit. And you're hearing the, the occasional, you know, they're drowning all around us, man. Oh, holy shit. You know, and we're shocked. You know, we've never seen this. This is not, no, I mean, this is not right. You know, so we didn't question it at the time, but well, actually we did, you know, got up next to him and. Here's the captain with the, you know, the, one of the side gates are open where we're pulled up on the port side of the boat or the yeah, port side of the boat and his guys are doing their thing. You know, they're pulling up on deck, you know, the shit, you know, cause they started as we were coming and he's leaning against the rail, peeling his fucking orange like this. And we are up there like, what in the fuck is going on? You know, he says in this kind of fucked up accent, he's like, I can't very well get this fucking shit up with all these cows on the boat. <laughs> wow. they're in the way it's very matter of fact so yeah. i mean the guy's making a million bucks he doesn't need these fucking cows obviously you know but we're not liking this shit man so we're like dude that's fuck. fucking terrible so we go we take the load we get back in and we start telling the shore crew you know about these crazy ass motherfuckers that pushed all these fucking cows in in the water a week later they a couple of them wash up on yeah, the beach i was about to say you know and, you know, it's very much one thing to be shelling and walking down the beach and trip over a dead fish, you know, but it's, you know, it's very much another to be shelling and walking along the beach and trip over a fucking cow. <laughs> so, you know, we go on working, you know, we do about two, three other, four other jobs in between, you know, whatever. And, and here comes this boat again, same fucking boat. 
cows on it again. And this time they got, you know, as we're getting a little closer, we're looking, they got pigs, they got goats and they got chickens and shit, you know, and, and for, and I can tell you the reason why this happens is, and they had probably two dozen of these fucking little spider monkeys that aren't about this tall running all over this fucking boat. So when that tailgate opened up and they started hitting them cattle like that, every one of them fucking monkeys hit the light mast, man. And they were sitting all up there in a row. Just like they knew what was fucking going on. They like they knew what was gonna happen, right? They're smart. They're like, I'm not, they I'm got not the, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting off this fucker, uh-huh. you know. So <laughs> we pull up there, the same scenario. There's all those fucking cows, you know. We look up this guy and we said, you know what? Don't ever come back like this again. So he said, you know, this is it. We're done. You know, we can't have this, you know, for, for a couple of good reasons. He said, one, you know, the poor fucking cows, man. And for two, we can't have them continuing to wash up on the fucking beaches because there's a red flag if i ever fucking saw one (laughs) you know so we go back to shore we get the load in and we tell the crew on shore again why those fucking guys came back again man with the fucking cows and it came out just started you guys are just a bunch of cowboys aren't you a bunch of saltwater cowboys out there fucking around and that just stuck so billy and mark and i are the first three original saltwater cowboys now that moniker is has been dubbed by anybody who hauled a bale of pot in South Florida. They're, they're calling them saltwater cowboys now. But that's how I got. That's wild. <laughs> Damn. That is wild. And I've got my little pirate stamp right here. The first run was a bit of a test job. They said they wanted me to go to Columbia, take care of the whole thing myself. Out of nowhere comes this single engine Cessna airplane. They're coming from 16 feet up. Bang! We're starting to hear the fiberglass. These fuckers were going to sink us. As soon as Donald opened that door, that fucking cop grabbed him. There was like 20 guys out there dressed like ninjas. Ten gun barrels against his fucking head. Yo, welcome to the Diamond Mine. The DiamondMine.LA, California source for boutique genetics. Powered by yours truly, Blackleaf. And you know what that means? That means I'm bringing my best genetics into this. I'm bringing stuff I've been hiding, harboring away, stuff I haven't wanted to let out. We're bringing all that into the diamondmine.la and we're gonna offer that to California. Go on our website, hit the newsletter, and see if you can rock with us. Get on board with some of our genetics and change your garden. The diamondmine.la, powered by Blackleaf.